How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you thinking this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one good scare. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock, the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys telling you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them, so that the next time you are caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horde. I'm your other host, Justin Bishop. And I'm your writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. And there ain't a better one in town. And today, we're going to give you the greatest gift a podcast can give. Our look at the second film in the career of John Waters in our series called Divine Filth. Thinking about Gary's intro, I really like the idea of people just hanging out at parties, like just chilling, you know, having a good time. And then they just start talking about pink flamingos to strangers. <laughs> I, You know, it's funny you say that because literally as I was saying it, I was... I was thinking about the line, you might actually be the expert. And I'm like, this is the movie where that is not something to boast about. <laughs> yeah, it might, be, it might be, man. People like, I, I don't think you guys understand how much people fucking love John Waters. Uh, like we, we've gotten more people excited about this, like this series that we're doing than just about anything else that we've done. I think because yeah. people, people love the guy. People love his movies. People love his, his outlook. It's there are fans. Yeah. Uh, they're usually weirdos. But, uh, you know, even so, it's like I just can't imagine the conversation for Pink Flamingos comes up and people are talking about like, you know, it was really interesting to me. I was listening to Cinema Shock and I learned that <laughs> to get the trailer out into the woods, this is what they did. I Not that I don't appreciate that you're going to tell us all about that, Justin. Of course. Yeah. I'm yeah. Saying, but, you know, there's going to be there's going to be some other things to discuss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's plenty to uh, to discuss. Plenty of antics went on <laughs> on during the filming of Pink Flamingo. So anyway, uh, with multiple maniacs, the movie we talked about in our first episode of this series, uh, John Waters. You know, by, by the end of that episode, he'd finally started to get some recognition outside of his native Baltimore. Uh, and while people were starting to read about Waters' films and learn of this weirdo, independent DIY filmmaker who was making low-budget films with his crew of misfits, uh, led by, of course, the formidable presence of his lead actor, Divine, uh, not a whole lot of people had actually been given a chance to to see the movies yet. But all of that would change with his follow-up to Multiple Maniacs. Uh, this is a film that would become synonymous with the Midnight Movie Movement, a film that would quickly become uh, one of the most notorious films ever made, and the film that really put John Waters and Divine on the map. That film, advertised as an exercise in bad taste, is, of course, the infamous Pink Flamingos. I'd like to close with the original trailer New Line Cinema used to sell Pink Flamingos. Notice, no footage from the actual movie is ever shown. 
did you happen to hear about it? From some friends who saw it and thought it was absolutely marvelous. Probably I'll be very insulted. Rex Reed, Reed told, told us that it's uh, fabulous. Would you come out at midnight to see it? Well, I go home at midnight. What are you going to see there? I guess there's just two kinds of people, Miss Sandstone, my kind of people, and Axon. It's fantastic. It's the third time I've been to it. It's an incredible head thing for people. Oh, it's marvelous. Absolutely. Most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my whole life. Not to be believed. Absolutely outrageous. <laughs> it was divine. Fabulous. I think it's the future of city living. Great. Piece of garbage. The only one I didn't like was snake. I have an aversion to snake. It was divine. I love religious movies. It's a little gross, but I liked it. Well, it was uh, really the grossest film I'd seen. I think John Waters has got his finger on the pulse of America. I think he's got his thumb securely up America's ass. I enjoy dirty things as much as everyone else does, but this isn't even dirty. It's just disgusting. Spoil everyone now. Condone first-degree spoilers. Advocate ruining movies-ism. Eat, I don't know, food. Films are our politics. Spoilers are our life. Do you know I made a note here to uh, mention the quote because I didn't think Todd was actually going to use that for a spoiler warning, and I was going to be like, Todd, you should have used this. And he did use that, so... <laughs> Excellent work, Never Todd. will I We're doubt all... you again. Yeah, we're on the same you. page. I love it. Listen, I'm open to feedback. If you have something, send it to me. But every now and then, like <laughs> every now and then, I do my job adequately. Adequately, yes. We keep you around. You know, you know what's weird about Divide too? I wanted to say just in reading all this stuff. Nobody that knows Divide ever refers to Divide as a drag queen. In fact, they say Divide is not a drag queen. I have a quote from John Waters and like one of the things I was reading that literally says, Divine was not a drag queen, but a character actor. In my scripts, Divide was never revealed as a man at the end. Divide just always played a woman or a man, which I mean, couldn't mean that he's just talking about in the movies. But yeah, the, here's the thing, though, is that because I've read similar quotes, maybe even that same quote, and the characters Divine plays in the films are female. They're not right. female impersonators. They're they're females in, in all of John Waters movies, at least. Uh, he does. Divine does play some male roles uh, in other films. But Divine, as a performer, is a drag performer, uh, especially after Pink Flamingos and, and really after Female Trouble, Divine becomes a stage star and performs in drag. And if that's not a drag queen or a dra drag performer, I don't know what is, you know. But in the context of the film, yes, uh, Divine plays female characters. Uh, and I get what John Waters is saying, but Divine was a drag performer. Uh, Divine just didn't play drag queen characters on screen. That yeah, that makes sense. sense. Yeah. Now that we're talking about it, yeah, but maybe maybe that's really what he's trying to say there. Yeah. Well, so at the beginning of our last episode, I gave a quote from John Waters on the difference between good, bad taste and bad, bad taste. Uh, but now I want to read the rest of that quote because I think it's relevant here. Uh, he says, it's easy to discuss someone. I can make a 90-minute film of people getting their limbs hacked off, but this would only be bad, bad taste and not very stylish or original. To understand bad taste, one must have very good taste. Good bad taste can be creatively nauseating, but must at the same time appeal to the especially twisted sense of humor, which is anything but universal. 
I think that quote's important because when you're talking about pink flamingos, you know, while while pink flamingos is certainly in bad taste, uh, nobody on the planet Earth is going to argue that, including John Waters himself. Uh, I think it's all kind of done with a wink and a smile. You know, while there are vile characters in the film, of course, and some questionable things done to bring the film to life, which we will talk about, uh, nothing John Waters is doing here is really like malicious. Uh, his ultimate goal is to just make his audience laugh and, you know, Sure, he might also want you to like throw up a little bit, but he wants you to then laugh at yourself about it afterwards. Uh, and I think that's kind of the, the difference between good, bad taste and bad, bad taste. He's not just throwing it in your face for a, a disgusted reaction. He wants a little bit more out of that from you. I think you can also talk about that when you talk about what we will get to later, but the difference between, you know, Divine's family and the marbles. One's good, bad taste, one's bad, bad taste, you know. But when he set out to make Pink Flamingos, uh, you had films like like Deep Throat were becoming mainstream. You know, uh, if you don't know anything about Deep, about Deep Throat, it is a hardcore porn movie. And like it became in, I think, 1973 or so, around the same time Pink Flamingos came out, it became like a thing that celebrities went to. Like Jackie Onassis went to see Deep Throat, you know, like every like very famous people. It was like the oh, thing wow. to do, Jeez. you know, so. John Waters' way of seeing this was, you know, if pornography was becoming mainstream, like that is like the the ultimate taboo in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, pornography, and that's becoming mainstream, then what was left to show that would still be considered taboo? Uh, so that's kind of the point of view that he came from when he started conceiving this film. So his first ideas for uh, what would become Pink Flamingos came during that road trip to California with David Lockery that we talked about in our last episode, like towards the end of that episode. This is when they drove to LA to attend the Multiple Maniacs uh, premiere there and also where Waters was going to start attending the Manson family trials. So while driving to California, Waters became obsessed with all these, uh, what he called sleazy trailer parks that he passed by. And he decided that if he could make a mobile home even tackier and cheaper than the ones that he had seen driving by, then he would have the perfect setting for Divine and her family and a kind of great starting point for the movie. And then later on, while he's uh, on the same California road trip, they're promoting Multiple Maniacs in San Francisco. Uh, John Waters and Divine, they're hanging out. Remember, they're doing all the shows at the Palace Theater with the Cockettes. That, that's during this time. So they're hanging out. They're eating donuts, just having kind of a chill day. John Waters turns to, uh, he turns to Divine and casually just asks, hey, would you eat some dog shit for real in the next film? And Divine just answers, sure. Like without missing a beat. Just, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Uh, before what John, John Waters says, before lighting up what was probably his 50th joint of the day. So it wasn't exactly a sober uh, conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but but that was it, you know, that 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 conversation happened. It was kind of a throwaway thing. And I think it, I think in Divine's head, it was never really, yeah, we're definitely going to do this thing until the day to film it came. It's like something they would talk about every now and then, but I don't, I don't know that divine ever really knew that it was going to happen until the day came, but you know, that was it. That was the, those, those were the building blocks for this film. Uh, John Waters knew that divine would live in a trailer and he knew that at some point in the movie divine would eat actual dog shit on film. And he would later say, uh, there's a, a quote from sh his book, shock value. He said, I knew I only had $10,000 to work with. So I figured I had to give the audience something no other studio could dare give them, even with multi-million dollar budgets, something to leave them gagging in the aisle, something they could never forget. And with that bit of motivation, uh, they were off to the races. John Waters began writing the script with an eye on the fall of 1971 as his start date. Just to capitalize on what you're talking about there, uh, in an interview with The Guardian, Waters talks about this a little bit and mentions rape, murder, 
incest, cannibalism, cop killing, bestiality, necrophilia, sadism, masochism, coprography. How do you say? I don't even know how you say that. Oh, that means eating dookie. Yeah, well, it does. And, and he said he he said the last of which was included in there, just so critics would have to look it up with a medical dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he goes on to say, you mentioned Deep Throat and everything. He said, pornography was also just becoming legal, which left exploitation in art films with nowhere else to go. So I tried thinking up things that weren't illegal on film yet, but should be. I always knew that eating dog shit was going to be the kicker ending. He's not wrong. And we will, of course, get to how they pulled that off later on in the show. But the first hurdle that they had to get over was actually finding a trailer and one that wouldn't put, put too big of a dent in their $10,000 budget. That $10,000, by the way, it's funny. I read an interview with John Waters earlier today in Interview Magazine that was right after this. And he says, they asked him where he gets the money for his films. And he's like, I have two people that give me the money. They prefer to re remain anonymous. But, you know, I will pay if I pay them back, I can get more. And he's talking about his mom and dad. His mom and dad are the ones who are putting up money for this. So they had done it for Mondo Trasho. They did it for Multiple Maniacs. And now they've done it for Pink Flamingos, because even though they didn't really agree with the type of movies that he was making, they just didn't get it. They were pretty conservative, you know. They were supportive. Uh, they were supportive of their son and his creative endeavors, and they they thought that this was good. They honestly thought that if he wasn't making movies, he'd probably end up in jail, is what it is. So they were uh, supporting him in a way where he had a creative outlet. So that $10,000, uh, yeah, that came from his mom and dad. So uh, they had to find this trailer using this budget, very small budget, obviously $10,000, even in 1971. And Waters recruited his friend, Vincent Piranio. Uh, we talked about him last episode. He was the guy who built the giant lobster in Multiple Maniacs, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so he hires his buddy Vince to help him find the perfect trailer. Uh, but they only had like $100 to spend. That's how much of their budget they allocated for the trailer, $100, which of course severely limited their options for for trailers. Well, they finally found one, uh, one within their budget. Uh, where else but in a junkyard? Uh, this trailer was just a shell. It had uh, been burned to a crisp. In one interview, John Waters said that it, there had been a couple of explosions in it. So I don't, I don't know if it was like a meth lab or if it was a propane explosion or or what. But anyway, all that was left of it was three charred walls, half a roof, and four singed tires. But Vincent Perano looks at it and he's like. Yeah, I, I think I can. I think I can work with this. He, he tells John, he's like, I think we can do this. I think I can fix it up nicely, slap a little paint on it. We'll be fine. And the the, the salesman at the junkyard just kind of like laughed in their faces as he took their hundred dollars from, from them for this dilapidated trailer. But it was worth every penny. It was all hundred, all hundred dollars worth. All hundred dollars. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, Waters had this friend named Bob Adams. You'll see Bob Adams credited in the film, I think, as a technical advisor. But Bob Adams lived in uh, what John Waters called a commune of draft dodgers, drug dealers, and homosexuals in a decaying country manor. So it was a hippie commune, uh, is what it was, on this uh, big property with, like, I don't know, a couple hundred acres. It was pretty big. But Adams agreed to let Waters film on his property so long as the trailer was set far enough back in the woods to where his snooty neighbors wouldn't see it. They didn't, he, they didn't want anyone to see what's going on. John Waters wanted a location that was kind of remote so that people would not bother them while they were filming. Can't so imagine people, why. <laughs> well, yeah. And he didn't want people like fucking with the trailer and things like that because they, they don't have security or anything, you know? So like they're only filming one day a week. So during the other six days a week, the trailer's just sitting there. So they didn't want it. They didn't want anything to happen to it either. That's a so, rape trailer. <laughs> 
So they began hacking a path through the mud and underbrush from Bob's house to a location in the woods where they would set up the trailer. Uh, getting it there proved to be pretty difficult. They had it towed to the property, but the tow truck driver refused to tow it down the path that they had carved out. I guess he was worried about his tow truck getting stuck or something. So he just dropped it off and abandoned it right next to Bob's house. So they still had like something like a half a mile through the woods to get to the actual filming site. So they've got the trailer just sitting there. They make a few phone calls to some neighboring farmers, and uh, one of them allowed them to use his tow truck to help them out. And he towed the trailer about halfway up the path, but then the trailer tipped over and got stuck in the mud. And the, this farmer was like, that's enough for me. He, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. He, uh, he, throws, he throws up his hands and just leaves. And he just is like, you guys get to deal with this mess now. So they've got a trailer that's halfway to where it needs to be, but it's turned over in the mud on its side. What are you youngsters <laughs> doing out here? They're just a bunch of raping and incest and uh, human trafficking, jerking off in syringes, you know. <laughs> that's not happening in the trailer. <laughs> None of that's happening oh, yeah. in the trailer. You're, you're right. I'm well, sorry. well not with that attitude, Justin. <laughs> Uh, so they call around a little bit more they get a hold of another farmer after a few phone calls and he showed up with a tractor like a bulldozer kind of thing big piece of equipment and then waters and then a bunch of bob's commune hippie friends managed to turn the trailer back upright so that it could be dragged by this tractor to its final destination in the woods. So once it was set up in the woods, Vincent Perano, he immediately got to work on sprucing it up. Uh, he patched up all the holes in the walls, which were a lot uh, the, the walls and ceilings, like I said, were, were pretty in pretty bad shape. He just covered them in cardboard mostly that he would then paint to match the actual walls. He just painted them all the same. I think it's all gray and pink if I remember in there. Mm. And then he, um, him and waters would go around to, all the worst, lousiest thrift stores in town, and they would find all of the ugliest furniture and ugliest items in these thrift stores that they could find, searching for anything that looked like it could be owned by the filthiest people alive. Nailed it. Yeah, I like Waters describes it as thrifty. That's nice. Uh, you know, it seems... <laughs> it's, uh, I, I saw an interview with Vincent Paradio where he says, the art department's budget was about $200. Half went to purchasing the trailer, half to decorating it. After that, we just stole things. <laughs> <laughs> which which fits their previous films as well, because they stole a lot of stuff on those... Uh, those including the film stock on the previous films remember so oh wow yeah, yeah but by this point uh Vincent Peronio is uh, he's a he's a dreamlander remember the dreamlanders that's uh John Waters crew of uh people in front of and behind the camera uh basically the the kind of unspoken rule is that once you've made two movies with John Waters, you're a dreamlander. So like even Tracy Lords, who is only in two John Waters movies, she's considered a dreamlander because oh, wow. she appears in more than one of them. So Vincent Peronio is an official dreamlander. I mean, he's going to work on pretty much all of these, you know, uh, but, and as we will see time and time again throughout this series, he was just one of several familiar faces that worked on this film. We're going to see a lot of these people just pop up again and again and again and again. Other returning dreamlanders on Pink Flamingos included, of course, Divine, who plays herself, or she plays a version of herself named Divine, who is living under a pseudonym of Babs Johnson. Uh, Mary Vivian Pierce, Bonnie Pierce, she plays Cotton, Divine's uh, traveling partner. I don't know what that means, uh, but that's what that's what they refer to her as in the film. And then the villains of the film, Connie and Raymond Marble, are played by Mink Stoll and David Lockery, uh, who we also saw in the last film. Cookie Mueller plays Marble's, uh, the Marble spy, who is also named Cookie. Paul Swift, who played Cookie's weatherman boyfriend in uh, Multiple Maniacs, he reappears here as the Eggman. 
and Susan Walsh, Pat Moran, Steve Yeager, and George Figgs, all of whom had small roles in Multiple Maniacs, were all in uh, Pink Flamingos as well. Although Pat Moran's character actually got cut completely from the film. She played a character named Patty Hitler. Who yeah, is, uh, it's all that. Uh, who, yeah, but uh, you can you can see her scenes on uh, the deleted scenes, but she's not in the film anywhere at all. And of course, you've got the unforgettable Edith Massey as Edie Divine's egg-loving mother. Uh, we're going to talk more about Edith Massey, I think, on the next episode, but this is kind of the movie that solidified her as a cult star. Uh, I mean, she really doesn't appear on any movies outside of John Waters, but Edith Massey has a um, unique film presence i think you could say <laughs> and i yeah, love her she, i think she's wonderful she is on a john cougar mellencamp album cover though. she is she so, is <laughs> not nothing matters and what if it did so uh and she's just sitting that. in the background like she just fucked john cougar mellencamp like she's <laughs> like like she's on the bed in the background and he's in the foreground and she's just giving him this like bet these bedroom eyes it's wonderful oh jeez <laughs> Uh, so we have talked about a few of you know the returning Dreamlanders here uh, that appear in Pink Flamingos, but we've also got some newcomers here, some people who are going to pop up again uh, in further films. So first of all, in the role of Channing, Channing is the manservant who works for the Marbles. The, he's the guy who uh, ins- inseminates the the, uh, the kidnapped women, you uh-huh. could say. Uh, so he is a guy named Channing Wilra. I love that John Waters just lets people use their real names in all of these films. I mean, for the most part, the Connie and, and Raymond Marbles, obviously they're not using their real names, but that's a, just a weird trend that he has where it's like, hey, Cookie, you're playing a character named Cookie. <laughs> yeah, they said Edith would have trouble remembering her lines and would like write them like a hundred times to just remember. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious on, on camera that she's not remembering her lines. Very no, well, yeah, yeah. But, she stumbles yeah. over them a few times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> probably naming her, you know, they probably want to keep everything as straightforward as possible. Yeah, right. And none of these are professional actors, really, except for maybe Divine, I guess you could say at this point. But yeah, for the most part, they're, we'll say untrained. They're untrained actors. So anyway, Channing, played by a guy named Channing Wilroy. Channing Wilroy was... In a way, the first celebrity to appear in a John Waters movie. You see, uh, Channing Wilroy had been a teen star on uh, Baltimore television. He was a dancer for three years on a show called The Buddy Dean Show, which was Baltimore's local version of like an American bandstand. And it actually later served as the inspiration for the Corny Collins show in Hairspray. So Wilroy, uh, he, he claims that he never actually auditioned for Pink Flamingos. John Waters was just a big fan of that show when he was a kid, and he just offered him the role. And ironically, though, I was looking through all the movies that Channing Wilroy is going to appear in, and uh, Hairspray is one of the few from here on out that he doesn't have a part in, and it's a movie that was partially inspired by the show that he was on. So that was interesting. Uh, Another newcomer here is uh, Elizabeth Coffey. She plays the transgender woman who flashes David Lockery in one of the more memorable scenes in the film. Uh, and she actually underwent gen- gender confirmation surgery just a week after she filmed this scene. Uh, she was one of the first trans women to get that surgery from John Hopkins Hospital there in Baltimore. And she's going to pop up in a couple of other small and sometimes even uncredited roles in future Waters films. I think like she plays a mom, like one of the dance moms in Hairspray, but I don't think she's actually credited. But uh, she appears in three or four movies from here on out. Uh, Danny Mills, who plays Crackers, who is Divine's son, he's kind of considered a Dreamlander, even though he only appears in this one movie. Uh, Just because it's such a significant role in such a significant film, I think he gets the uh, title of Honorary Dreamlander because of that. But uh, this is his only appearance in a John Waters movie, and it's actually his only appearance in a movie, period. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what became of him. I know that he, he apparently 
I saw one interview, not with him, but so this was hearsay from someone else where they said that he kind of regretted appearing in the film. I mean, he does appear in a couple of uh, questionable scenarios, including one where Divine, who plays his mother, gives him a blowjob. And Waters actually uh, has said that he kind of regrets filming that scene, Uh, not because of its content, but because it was awkward because Danny Mills and Divine were friends. You know, so, it, you know, your friend's giving you a blowjob on screen. Also because Danny Mills was straight. I think Danny Mills was actually dating Mary Vivian Pierce around this time. So so a, he's a, a straight man getting a blowjob from one of his buddies on a film, which is probably why he's very limp in the whole scene. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So where it gets that, because it's going to make it awkward for the movie idea I had. The, <laughs> <laughs> the, the first Cinema Shock movie is going to be really interesting. Uh, he, yeah, Waters, like, it's good to see he actually has regrets at some points in his life. He's capable of that. Um, the, he says he, he felt like, uh, back to Deep Throat again, he said that this he just feels that this was the most dated part of the film because Deep Throat had been released and the scene was him satirizing the rise of porno chic yeah and so i guess he just felt like it was just it doesn't make sense anymore it's not as big of a deal anymore right maybe, or something because porno was becoming mainstream so this was kind of his reaction to that i can't i can't help but feel like i mean i know this is not on the same same level right but this guy uh Danny Mills, who you know disappears from filmdom, I couldn't help but think of Mara Lorenzio and El Topo, who yeah. just vanishes well, right well, after making. He vanishes from films, but I mean, him and John Waters were still buddies. Like they lived together after Pink Flamingos was filmed. Them and the two of them and Mary Vivian Pierce. Uh, I don't think we talk about this, and, and I don't think I have this on my notes anywhere. But after Pink Flamingos, they all moved to New Orleans for a while, and they were all roommates in New Orleans. So it's not like he felt like he had been betrayed or anything weird or like anything un- untoward had happened. Uh, he was probably just embarrassed. I mean, it, it's an awkward situation to be getting a blowjob from one of your friends in a movie, especially a movie that becomes a phenomenon <laughs> and millions of people are seeing it. But right. him and John Waters seemed like they were still they were still cool after this, you know? Yeah, I didn't find anything that said they were like had a problem with each other or anything like that. So I, like I said, it's not the same thing. I just couldn't help but think of her. But like the I, I looked for stuff about it. But I mean, I saw where he passed away or something like that. But like I yeah, could only find like stuff on forums where every once in a while somebody would have a story about him. Like right. one person had a story about being in like a not a halfway house, I guess, but like a, maybe like a shelter or something like that uh, with him at one point or something they said. I don't know. The guy, my biggest problem with him through the whole movie was why was he waiting on a morning date? Like who goes on a date first thing in the morning? Do people do that? (laughs) I mean, if you're like, in a long-term relationship, yeah, you got to like brunch and stuff like that. But th- yeah, this seemed like a new relationship here. Yeah, and yeah, you don't start with uh, a morning date, bring your date home to look at your egg-loving granny sitting there. <laughs> right. In the trailer, <laughs> in the woods. Yes, in the <laughs> no, that's uh, something you wait until at least like the third date. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I so uh, so I feel that our relationship is progressing, and uh, <laughs> you know, for this for this next little thing, I'd uh, you know, I'd like to for you to meet some of my family members. Now they're they're a little eccentric, but uh, <laughs> well, they, Cookie they, does they meet in this, her, and they live in this cozy trailer. I think you're really gonna like it. Uh, 
<laughs> just how what? awkward. I mean, it only makes sense that he does what he does afterwards. But well, the, I, uh, I mean, Cookie does meet Edie, Edie and immediately say, "What's wrong with her?" <laughs> I think, I think it's, it's yeah. her reaction. <laughs> I love those. And his, and his answer is. Ain't nothing wrong with her. She's just my grandma, which is one of my favorite lines in the whole movie. <laughs> like that explains everything. It's so weird, and and the fact that, like I mentioned with like Edie, like Edith doesn't like change. Like they don't stop her. Like she stumbles over lines, and then or like kind of catches herself. They're not, yeah, <laughs> they, just, like, they, they can't afford to because they're because of the way they're having to film. Just like in multiple maniacs, you know, they're shooting on film that also records the dialogue at the same time. So you can't shoot coverage and then loop in a dialogue track. So he's just having to shoot everything in long takes. So like, if you fuck up, we'll just keep it or we'll try again. Or maybe that was the best take. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Talking about that cast. I still, I still got to say for some reason, I got a weird crush on being stole. Uh, She's wonderful. I, I love I can't her. Explain She's myself. She is it's my just... favorite dreamlander. Like I said, last episode. And actually uh, it's her. And then I, she runs a tie for me because I think David Lockery is still one of the best. I don't know why. Like he's so charismatic to me, and I he love is. watching him. And he's and it's weird because he's not a good actor, and then no, sometimes he kind of is. But yeah. it's like I don't know. It's just his presence. I like I like him. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm with you. I mean, I th I think so. I think there's. I think that's something about this movie and these early John Waters movies is that there were there have been a lot of movies made that were made by amateurs, people who are are not great actors or or even not great filmmakers yet. John Waters is not a great filmmaker yet from a technical standpoint. But there's a charm to these movies that you don't get out of other movies that are kind of in that same realm of like DIY, low budget, amateur filmmaking. And I think part of it is one, John Waters has a very distinct voice, but also there's something about several of these Dreamlanders that are just, despite the fact that they're not very good actors, they're very charismatic. There's something very charismatic about them. I mean, Divine is that way. Divine, you can't take your eyes off of. But Mink Stoll, David Lockery, and I'd say I think Cookie Mueller is that way too. I think she is yeah. like she's not a great actor, but there's she's got a there's a presence to her, you know, that you just can't look away from. And speaking of presence and just uh, a charisma, one of the actors in this uh, was actually not even his name was never disclosed at the release of this movie. It wasn't till following his death in 2020. And that's a uh, the singing asshole. That's uh, <laughs> David Gluck. So uh, uh, the old the, yeah. we got to talk about the singing asshole. We got to talk about that. Well, originally <laughs> at his request, he wasn't credited. I, I think just we talked about this before. You mentioned his parents. He was afraid of his parents finding. Uh, yeah, I don't think he really cared if anyone else saw it necessarily, but he did not want his parents knowing that it, that that was him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and John Waters kept that secret for forever, never revealed it. But uh, yeah. and then he died in 2020. I, I think I did read that he he really wanted it kept secret till his parents passed. But then, yeah. yeah, following his death in 2020, his widow gave her blessing for his identity to be made public. Uh, so I mean, he would tell people every now and then during his while he was alive, you know, where like he would go to screenings of the movie, uh, like when it was being re-released for his 25th anniversary. And during that scene, he would tap on the person's shoulder in front of him and go, hey, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> and he, I, remember, I remember one one little antidote I read said that he um, he became like a computer security engineer or something like that. He, he worked in, in, in computers his whole life. But I remember one story I heard where he had lent a copy of Pink Flamingos to one of his coworkers. 
and with like not to, not saying that and this is years later but i guess he's still going to be recognizable you know because you can see his face in the movie and that they returned it like the, the next day or after they watched it and like without a word just like gave it just like handed it back to him no comment <laughs> <laughs> i can tell you one way, place i didn't see our relationship going and that's me seeing your butthole so i imagine most of my relationships going in a direction where i don't see the other person's butthole <laughs> yeah, I got to tell you, though, I knew about the butthole going in, you know, although it does still come out of nowhere. And one thing Waters does is, wow, these seeds linger. Uh, but I, I feel I feel like the butthole was a little oversold to me because I don't think it lip synced very well, too. Uh, <laughs> Listen, no, I mean, it's, we've already it's, talked about the performers in John Waters movies are not real actors. They're not trained. <laughs> that guy was at the beginning of his career. Had he, you know, really dedicated himself to rhythmically pulsing his anal cavity he really could have been something. Really he could have. He been. was. He was waiting um, on somebody like that coworker to be like, I don't know, man. It seemed like you were a little off. Like, well, I've been working on this for like twenty five years. Let me, let me let me show you it now. Uh, I'm waiting I for hope, somebody. To I hope that Surf and Bird is like what was his ringtone. <laughs> I hope that his butthole nervously twitched to it every time it's playing. <laughs> to be fair, it is difficult to accurately lip sync with a part of your body that does not have lips. That's, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, so let me, I got, I've got a fun, I actually found, I read an, this interview this morning. Uh, so the, I just came across this, but uh, an interview with John Waters from Interview Magazine from 1973. So right after the movie came out, they straight up ask him, where did you get the guy with the dancing asshole? That's their question. He says, his John Waters story. I'm going to I'm going to read this whole quote probably or most of it. It's a little long, but it's a great story, so it's worth it's worth hearing. But he says, uh, he called me up. I'd never met him and we were making the film and he said, "I know your work and I have something I think you might be interested in." And I said, "What?" He said, "I have this asshole." <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, "Welcome over." So he came over and it was in the daytime. And I wasn't even stoned. It was just my daily life. And he knocked on the door and he came in and said, well, I better take a shit first. And I thought, what is he going to do? And then he came out of the bathroom and said, well, it might smell a little. So I said, we better go upstairs because I was living with all these people and I thought he might get uptight. So he took off all his clothes, whipped his legs over his head and started doing that. Well, I was so taken aback. I didn't even know what to say to him. So I just said, great. Well, we'll call you. But when... <laughs> <laughs> but when that was filmed it was not at the birthday party it was a whole different day with just him there because he said he couldn't do it in front of a lot of people i had to buy him a fifth of liquor and he guzzled it down and then he did it and i never saw him again until the opening of the movie and he came in and rushed in up to me and he said hope there aren't any girls in the audience not many girls here are there he was a college student and he told me that he, he could always do it and he showed his parents one time and they said don't you ever do that again and he just thought from seeing my movies that I would like it. And I really did. <laughs> so that's the story of John Waters meeting David Gluck for the first time. And they did film it separately. They filmed the birthday party scene and the pictures, the videos of all the uh, party attendees reacting. They filmed that separately. And then when they filmed him, it was just like John Waters and him. I mean, John Waters is the cameraman. And that was pretty much it. It was pretty much just the two of them. There might have been a, another crew member or somebody there, Pat Moran, who was kind of his unofficial 
Well, she probably wasn't there because he didn't like doing it in front of girls. So it might, Pat Moran probably wasn't there either. It might've just been him and John Waters, but they filmed that separately. And John Waters said he did a lot of other like tricks and stuff too, because he's obviously a contortionist. Uh, like he would, could do this thing where he could run all the way up the wall to the ceiling and like fall back, but they couldn't keep that in the film because you had to shoot it wide and it was clear that he wasn't actually at the party. So they had to keep it kind of up close. But yeah, apparently he was very drunk when he filmed that scene. He had to be liquored up pretty good <laughs> to do it on camera. But I mean, it's he offered weird. it. Yeah, there's a, I was going to talk about her uh, a little bit at the end too, but there there's a famous uh, censor in Baltimore too. Uh, Avara, yeah. I think was her uh -huh. last like Mary Avara. The uh, mother superior of American censorship or whatever they call her, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And she, you know, even when it got to her, she was wanted to censor it so much but like uh water said that she couldn't end up censoring it because there was no like touching anybody there's nothing anything. illegal about it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway todd was a david gluck and his singing asshole on star trek uh they were they were looking they were looking at david gluck's asshole to have a reoccurring uh appearance as the cardassian forehead um <laughs> Uh, five, uh, five people will, will understand that joke. But uh, yeah, surprisingly, there's nobody in Star Trek. But I'm bumped right. up. <laughs> yeah, just, just, we, I, still, I still think we just need a sound clip of you saying that for every one of these episodes. Uh, I, yeah, you, right. might, you might find somebody by hairspray. Maybe. I, yeah, and listen, you know, just because I, I don't have a lot to add <laughs> to this discussion. Damn it. I search every single name. Hey. <laughs> <And> I, <laughs> Without we appreciate fail. your dedication to your craft, Todd. There you go. <laughs> you think maybe somebody, even in like the production, would end up exactly? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but on eventually. this, like, the only one that has like a the, the person behind the scenes, other than John Waters, who has like a major career going forward. Everyone has careers, not, not necessarily in film, but you know, Mink Stoll pops up in movies. I mean, even now, even still. But Pat Moran, who we, we've mentioned a few times, you know, she becomes an Emmy-winning casting director. Yeah. She casts The Wire, uh, Homicide Life on the Streets, Veep. Like, she is, a, she's a, a big deal. Yeah, she was the one I, I took a second look at because, just like Justin said, there are a few, you know, this crew does more than just, you know, shoot some weird stuff in a backyard. Like Yeah, this is the beginning of, of their them careers. Went, yeah, a lot of them went on to a lot of different things. Just yeah. Star Trek is a very niche thing and yeah, yeah. there's not, did, not filming a lot of star trek episodes in baltimore right right <laughs> <laughs> okay so there is one other very important new dreamlander on this film and that is a guy named van smith uh you might not recognize van from his on-screen appearances although he does appear in the birthday party scene he's there in the audience but his behind the scenes contributions to pink flamingos and divine and water's careers in general were really integral to their success so Van Smith was known as the resident ugly expert on Waters films, working with the director on every single movie, starting with Pink Flamingos, all the way through A Dirty Shame, which was John Waters' uh, most recent film in 2004. In Shock Value, Waters' uh, biography that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote from that one a lot because it's wonderful. Uh, Waters says that Smith, quote, totally understands the look of inner rot that I demand and could come up with the perfect look for each character without my ever having to say a word. So these two guys are just like, on the same wavelength as far as the visuals of the film. So also in that book, Smith describes his method as a makeup artist saying, 
I like to start with a freshly scrubbed face. First, I apply pimples made out of eyelash glue. And if they have any natural glow, I throw dirt on their faces as a good base. Then I draw on blackheads, pencil on any age lines, shadow severe bags under their eyes, and crack their entire complexion by letting egg white dry on their skin. Uh, so obviously, he's saying that with tongue in cheek. Uh, and, and you'll see some of what he's describing there, some of those looks on some future John Waters films more than you see them here. Uh, but Van Smith was, you know, he was a professional. You know, he was born and raised in Florida, but he, he ended up in Baltimore after attending the Maryland Institute College of Art, where he graduated with a degree in fashion arts. So he's not just some guy they found on the street, you know, and said, hey, do you know how to put makeup on? No, he's like, he went <laughs> to school for to fashion design. As opposed to the guys they found on the street. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, which are plenty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not entirely sure how he met John Waters and Divine. I imagine that he, like most Dreamlanders that we've talked talked about was like a friend of a friend who just kind of stuck around. That's what seems to happen with this crew. But what I do know is when he first put Divine's makeup on for the first time, or at least the first significant time. Our last episode, back at the end of that Multiple Maniacs episode, we talked about Divine's trip to San Francisco, where in addition to screening Multiple Maniacs, Waters and Divine put on these live performances at the Palace Theater, along with the local avant-garde theater troupe known as the Coquettes. Well, prior to this trip, John Waters asked Van Smith to help him come up with kind of a fresh look for Divine for this trip and for this series of, of live performances. And the only real instruction that John gave him was just do something weird with his hairline. And, well, Van Smith took that instruction to heart, uh, and he had Divine shave his head halfway back. And the reason being was that this would allow more room for eye makeup on Divine's head because the human face simply didn't have enough real estate for how much eye makeup Van wanted to give Divine. Because if you look, I mean, Divine's eyeshadow goes up to... Oh, like yeah. half <laughs> all the yeah, way oh, yeah. his head. Uh, <laughs> but with that look that he created, that iconic divine look that we all know, that that was where it started. So with that, at that point, that's kind of when he became an official Dreamlander. He uh, he stuck around, like I said, all the way through 2004, through a dirty shame. Uh, he created all of Divine's looks, not only for Pink Flamingos, but for every Divine and John Waters collaboration from here on out, uh, in addition to creating Divine's look for her off-Broadway shows and the looks for all of the other characters in, in Waters' films. I mean, he is the main guy, and not just as a makeup artist. He was also a costume designer. Uh, so he's a costume designer slash makeup artist all in one, which is great for John Waters working on these small budgets probably, you know, but also oh, yeah. to have a guy who is, he he gets what you're going for, you know, to, and to, to have one guy be able to do all of that is pretty important. Uh, and I think, honestly, he is as responsible for the look of John Waters' films as anybody else is. He truly is one of Waters' most significant collaborators. I mean, the John Waters' movies would not look the same if it were not for Van Smith. So I figure, we're, I'm sure we'll, he'll come up again in future episodes, but I really wanted to highlight him here because when people think of Divine, especially, the look that you think of for Divine is the look in Pink Flamingos. Yeah, and when Divine goes on to do Off-Broadway and doing all these... Uh, live performances, all of her looks on those, and you can find plenty of them. If I had, go watch her Top of the Pops performances on YouTube. They're they're fun. But all of her looks on those, were they were created by Van Smith, but they're all a play on the look that he created for Divine here. So, you know, so he's a, an incredibly important part of, of John Waters and Divine's story, I think. 
All right, so as with all of Waters' movies, Pink Flamingos was filmed, of course, in Baltimore, Maryland, and the surrounding areas. But even with a $10,000 budget, which was much higher than they'd have, anything they'd ever worked with, what was what was Multiple Maniacs? Like five or seven grand, I think, right? Oh, five yeah. grand, seven grand, something like that? Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. Uh, so $10,000, so they're working with a, a significantly higher budget, but even in 1971, I mean, that's still incredibly uh, an incredibly small amount of money to, to make a, a feature-length film. So they had to make every dollar stretch as far as it could and just to give you an example of how small the budget was anytime they were filming in the trailer which remember they bought for a hundred dollars uh they only had a single movie light to use which they powered using a mile long extension cord that ran back up to the house on the commune property because the trailer doesn't have electricity the shooting for the film began in october of 1971 and lasted until january of 1972 and uh, if you know anything about the weather in baltimore not exactly an ideal time to uh, be shooting in an unheated trailer with no electricity. Uh, in fact, if you look closely at some of the scenes, uh, the scene I really noticed it in was when the Eggman is talking to Edie. Yeah. Uh, you can see their breath. I was actually going to bring that up. It's insane. Like her lower lip is like shivering in that Yeah, scene. they're very, very cold. Uh, the temperature also had a tendency to affect their equipment, uh, which, which was a problem. Uh, so they hired a guy. His name's Fred. Let's talk. I'm going to talk about this guy named Fred because it cracks me up for some reason. Uh, there's this guy named Fred that John Waters talks about in his biography. Uh, they hired him to supply the camera and the sound equipment for the film. Now, I don't have his full name. He's not in the credits anywhere. In shock value, Waters only refers to him as Fred, maybe to protect his identity. I don't know. But the camera that they used, uh, it was a 16 millimeter camera, just like Waters had used on Multiple Maniacs. Only this time, they were shooting in full color, although the uh, the film stock that they used, it was still that same stuff that was usually used for newsreels, like mm. they used in the in the previous film. I mean, they're mm. using the exact same cameras on the previous film, exact same film stock, except this is a color version of it. But just like on Multiple Maniacs, the sound is recorded directly onto the film itself, which is, like I was saying earlier, meant that they, they can't really shoot coverage. They have to kind of shoot everything in long takes, which is why the takes are so long and you're not cutting back and forth between characters. So they have to recite this, these long bits of dialogue all in one take basically. Cause that was the only way to do it with the equipment that they had to work with. But anyway, it was this Fred guy who actually owned the camera uh, and he was sort of renting it out to waters. Uh, waters shot the film himself. He's his own cinematographer for several of these films. Most of these films we're talking about actually. Uh, and Fred remained on set as a technical advisor in case anything were to go wrong. And boy, did things go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, the temperature of the trailer was usually around 25 degrees, so they're working in sub-freezing temperatures, uh, the camera kept freezing, and the film would either jam or the film would end up coming back from the lab horribly scratched, rendering it completely useless. So when this happened, Waters would practically start crying, and Fred, em- embarrassed, would agree to work a makeup day without pay because of his faulty technical equipment. So Fred's having a hard time. Waters is having a hard time. Everyone's kind of having a hard time with this. Now, Fred Fred was not a dreamlander. He wasn't part of their regular crew. He wasn't part of the, the, the friends that they hung out with. I'm not sure where they found this guy, but it soon became clear that he had no idea what he was getting into when he signed on for this. For one, the cast seemed to make him a little nervous, especially Divine. But I, I can you imagine, though, you're just hired to make a movie and you don't, you're totally unprepared for Divine. And you're all of a sudden th- thrust into the situation. I mean, I, I kind of get how that could be jarring, you know? I imagine the funny part is like you you see the guy first day of like, 
oh, I met this really eccentric character named Divine. And then smash cut to like the end of the shoot and was like, yeah, Divine was the least of my issues, honestly. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, so I think Edith Massey freaked him out a little bit as well. So uh, Edith Massey, every time I talk about her, I'm just going to talk about how much I love her because I do. I think she's wonderful. One thing everyone says about Edie is that she's just one of the most gregarious, friendly people you'll ever meet. Everyone loves her. She's a delight. But imagine you're Fred. You walk into this trailer and there's a woman who's in her 50s. She's in her 50s at this point. She's missing a bunch of teeth. Uh, she's got a, let's say, a rather full figure just stuffed into this corset <laughs> and, and sitting inside of a playpen inside of a trailer in the middle of the woods in Baltimore. So you walk in, you're Fred, and you hear her and she just tosses off a cheery, hi, Fred, the minute you walk in. Fred would get startled and jump out of his skin every time that happened. <laughs> he was just like, and then on especially cold days, Edith would give Fred this coy little smile, giggle, and whine. Oh, Fred, could you rub my feet? <laughs> and then John, and John Water says that he's like, well, how could he say no? <laughs> so I guess he actually gave her foot rubs. I don't know. Uh, that's hearsay. But this is Fred's experience on on Pink Flamingos. So one day, Fred's concerned wife starts showing up on set uninvited of course she just starts showing up maybe he had told her some of the stories about what was going on maybe she was worried that edith was hitting on him or something so she had to come keep an eye on him but she started nagging fred to quit looking around the set nervously as the actors fondly caressed knives and guns during their scene or or watching them film scenes where they're shouting out lines like we might be in the mood for a barbecue a human barbecue she's just seeing all this depravity and she's like what the fuck is my husband doing like why is he working here <laughs> well as the the shoot went on, Waters became increasingly perplexed and angry at Fred's lack of technical expertise since, after all, he'd been hired as a technical advisor and clearly didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> uh, as John became more and more annoyed by the day, Fred was becoming more and more horrified at the scenes that he and probably his wife felt like he was being forced to witness. So one scene that proved to be the, almost proved to be at least the breaking point for Fred is the one where Divine receives a gift-wrapped turd in the mail and shrieks, oh my God, someone has sent me a bowel movement. So they shot this scene and it was perfect. Perfect take, one take, we nailed it. But Fred started gagging and ruined the take, which of course rubbed John Waters the wrong way because anytime somebody screwed up a take, it's like, well, man, that's money out of our pocket because that's more film. We got to do it all over. Uh, the reason he was gagging was probably because the turd itself was an actual turd. It wasn't a prop turd. I don't know if they had a prop department except for maybe Vincent Pirano. Uh, Divine had actually shit in a box the day before filming, which I met, I guess, I guess so that Vince didn't have to do it. I guess that was just uh, one less thing that the prop department had to take care of. I, to, to be fair, I'm a little, <laughs> I'm a little disappointed that it was a day old turd. Like really, really John, we, could, we couldn't go for a fresh turd. Come on. Hey, it was one day old. I mean, it was still, yeah. according go to ahead the and explain Listen, Justin how a day old turd is fine. <laughs> Well, according to the actors who were in the scene with, with Divine, which was uh, Mary Vivian Pierce and Danny Mills, uh -huh. it definitely still smelled pretty fresh. <laughs> well, of course, hey, it's 25 degrees. <laughs> Fred, honey, I know that you've always dreamed of Hollywood, but this is... I don't know. You know, you're taking so many days off work and you're doing this thing. And I, no, listen, Barbara, I prayed to Jesus every single night and he brought me a real life Hollywood job. I'm going to go to this movie and it's going to be a big break, baby. We're going to be famous. I'm going to be a real life Hollywood cameraman. <laughs> I love that you gave him a Fred, southern why accent. Why are you crying? Why are you crying, Fred? 
Divide shit in a box, baby. <laughs> Divide shit in that box. God is testing me. <laughs> oh, man. I love that you gave him a Southern accent and not a Baltimore accent. You got to start working I, on your Baltimore accent. You're right. I got to get that together before this uh, series is over. <laughs> well, thanks to Fred. The shoot was constantly behind schedule because the camera that he supplied kept freezing and eating film. Fred's days as it seemed uh word numbered at this point uh and the final straw for fred and honestly this is the final straw for a lot of people who see this film is the infamous chicken fuck scene so let's just address the elephant the, let's just address the chicken in the room and talk very briefly about this scene i don't want to like linger on it but you can't ignore it because it is it's fucking there <laughs> um, but yes the the scene depicts real animal violence uh, and if you've listened to the show long enough, then I think you know that none of us are very cool with the idea of animals being harmed for art. And for what it's worth, and granted, it may not be worth deadly squat to you, but the, the chicken in the scene was bought from a uh, freshly killed poultry store. Basically, it's a place where you go and they slaughter the chicken for you and then sell it to you to cook. It's a butcher. So yes, the chicken was going to die anyway. Uh, does that mean that it should have been treated the way it was for the scene? In my opinion, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, uh, it's the one and only scene in the film, and th and I'm including the dog shit scene and the blowjob scene and everything else that's all the other weird shit in this film. This is the one scene in the film that I have a hard time watching, and I, I kind of wish I wasn't in the movie. Danny Mills didn't love the idea of doing it. He's the one who he kills the chicken. Uh, he cuts the chicken's head off during the scene, like you would, like a butcher would. But he only agreed to do it because John Waters told them that they were they would eat the chicken afterwards. Uh, that they would roast it and have dinner. Uh, so that's the only way they could agree to get him to do it. Uh, otherwise, he wasn't going to do it. Same with Cookie Mueller, because she's a... Cookie Mueller does, like, animal rights activism, or she did animal right, rights activism later on in, in her uh, life. But that was the only way to get him to do it. They apparently filmed quite a few takes. John Waters says 13. I think Cookie Mueller in her autobiography says, like, eight or nine takes to do this. And then they then they had a big chicken feast afterwards. But it's, it's a gross scene. I, I mean, it is the... In my opinion, it's the grossest scene in the movie. I'd rather watch Divine eat dog shit. But I don't want to dwell on it like too, too much. But I also didn't want us to just brush over it and not address it because it, should, it shouldn't be ignored necessarily, you know? Well, I, and, you know, I I do not pick on people's triggers. Uh, everybody's got their own life experiences. The things trigger them differently. This is the one, uh, the first cinema shock movie that pissed off my wife and made her mad at me because she was watching. <laughs> Which it. means that she was probably mad at me. <laughs> yeah she was mad in general and she was she was like you cannot brush over this in your little review of this movie that they tortured and killed an animal on screen so i told her we would not so we would definitely be we never it, do but, uh, we, nev we never we never brush over the the difficult stuff on these films she, she she is most angry at john waters of course she animal violence is her her thing this is technically if you you know we didn't talk about this before but this is the second time he's done this because if you watch mondo trasho i mean it starts with him there's a guy chopping chickens heads off in that movie yeah it's, it starts with an execution a guy in an executioner mask chopping them on a chop on a chopping block but i mean that is how chickens are killed for consumption well, that uh, one's a little closer to real than yeah. uh, I'm rubbing my dick on it till it suffocates and dies or gets crushed or whatever. Yeah. So it's well, uh, they, they, I mean, they, they say that they cut it, they cut its head off like you would when you're 
slaughtering a chicken. Oh, uh, so maybe uh, they did it like right before, but that's yeah. There, that's, the, you this, can, yeah, there is a cut. Like there's a definite transition uh, from the beginning of that. Scene it does. Yeah, yeah, I know that. That oh, God, I can't believe we're talking this much about it. But the <laughs> yeah, <it's not> about, <laughs> I, I don't want to dwell on it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can, I can imagine if you're focused on animal cruelty and or a vegan or something that you don't have much time left for this dude. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get that. I mean, I get that. And, and it's not like he is reveling in it or anything. I mean, we there are movies that are, and this is a very significant movie historically. Uh, and I and I like this movie a lot, uh, but I don't like this that scene a lot. I don't like that scene at all. I don't like watching it. I, I never skip through it when I watch this movie, but I, I kind of like am sitting there like tense the whole the whole time. Yeah, well, I mean, just and it's sitting, not because just... of the content. Like if they had used a fake chicken, I would not give a shit about the content. Right. Uh, it's just the fact that, yes, you, you see a, a dead chicken, and, and there is blood in the scene, which is mostly the chickens. Some of it's cookies, because she gets pretty scratched up. So, well, you know, she's getting fucked by a chicken pecker. Yeah. That's yeah. weird. So, putting and it's it. in um, the script, by the way. Like, I, I read the script to this, uh, and I, well, I, I didn't read the whole script to Pink Flamingos, but I did read certain scenes to see, because John Waters always talks about how there's no improvis improvisation in his films, and it is fully written there, right in the scene. Like, exactly well, as you see it on screen. It's crazy, because it's, like, premeditated like that. Like, I mean, you know, I get it. It's, it's an animal. I know some people are gonna but it is it is cruel that the chicken is sitting there and it doesn't know what's going on it has no concept of what's about to happen and then not to mention it's in a rape scene which also uh compounds my frustration with that part of the movie at least like midsick Choi and old boy uh says prayers for the octopus that he eats you know like he seems to regret having to do it but you know there's there's that. This seems like little to no regard to any of what we would do by today's standards, at least. It's weird, though, that, and this is the last thing, we'll move on after this, but one thing I noted is, like, when you hear people talk about this movie, they talk a lot about the dog shit scene. They talk a lot about the singing asshole, but they don't, people don't bring this scene up very often uh, when talking about this movie, It's which is really odd to me. You know, well, it's a, I, I, I don't, it. I don't have anything to say about it besides that, other than I noticed that and I found that strange that it doesn't come up. I'm sure it comes up in some like letterbox reviews and stuff. Oh yeah, for uh, sure. But, it will. I, but in like the people retroactively reviewing this film, talking about it and all this, this is just not a scene that gets discussed very often. I think people know there's no defense for it or something. Yeah, and they probably and there's nothing to say about. It. I think even I want to say it was Waters, but I could be wrong. But one of the interviews I read and I didn't write it down, but mentions that it was just a different time then. And they said it's not as an excuse or anything, but they were saying it's weird. Because I think it was Waters because he said that people were telling him that you're going to have a real problem with a gay blowjob being in this movie. Right. And then he was like, then it was the dog shit. And he's like, and now like modern times, it's like the chicken is yeah really pissing people off. I mean, that is interesting though. It is, it is interesting. And I mean, and granted they, he was trying to shock people and he was 25 years old. He was a kid. So anyway, we've addressed it. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's talk about Fred some more. Shall we? Uh, so <laughs> regardless of, you know, all, all this other stuff's going on, Fred's on scene. He's there. He's, he sees this scene. It seems like Fred's moral objections to the Pink Flamingo script combined with his constantly broken camera and lack of technical skills proved to be a little bit too much for Waters. Uh, he fired him and Fred could not have been happier when he was told that he was fired from the film. But uh, once Fred was gone, they hired new camera owners, new technical advisors. Things started to get back on schedule. Uh, the new camera operators or camera owners, I guess I should say, because Waters operates it himself, 
Uh, they included a complete stranger named Hank who joined the film with a camera that he had quote unquote borrowed from a local TV station. And then there was an old friend of John's named Steve that also showed up with some equipment that he had gotten a hold of somehow because I don't know how because John Waters never bothered to ask where did you get this? Uh, and I think that friend, this is just, I, I have no proof of this, but it's got to be Steve Yeager. Steve Yeager is, he's in the movie. He plays one of the news reporters at the end, but he shot a lot of behind the scenes footage for on, on set on here. So any of the behind the scenes footage you see on this was shot by Steve Yeager. Uh, and he's done, he's directed several documentaries about John Waters. Uh, but the footage that he shot here specifically was the basis for his documentary, Divine Trash, which came out in 1998. It is some really great footage that a movie of this budget and size you usually don't get. So it's pretty cool that he was able to, to be on set and shoot some behind the scenes stuff on here. Because usually a movie like this, you really can only go by interviews and, and people talking about it. You don't actually get to see them filming it. Uh, so it's really cool to see the footage that he shot there. Thank you, Steve Yeager, for what yeah. you've contributed here. Uh, Hank was just another poor bastard who was just out there just, what the hell? That boy's <laughs> asshole that? singing. <laughs> <laughs> that Hank, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, once they got these guys, you know, things started looking up. Uh, even the weather started to cooperate. The temperature got above freezing or or right around freezing some days, so it was a little bit warmer. But other than these technical issues and, of course, the content of the film itself, the shoot was pretty conventional. As is the case on all of Waters' films, as we've said, nothing was improvised. Every scene was rehearsed for several weeks prior to shooting, so they'd be able to zip right through it with as few takes as possible since multiple takes means more film and more time, which means more money, which they don't have. So most of the scenes are shot in, you know, one or two takes. They would film this once a week over the course of several months, starting at 8 a.m. and shooting sometimes all the way up to midnight. Uh, there's no, they don't have any catering. They don't have bathrooms at the at the uh, trailer when they're shooting at the trailer. Uh, so it's, you know, it's not exactly an easy shoot. But for some of the locations that are used in the film, uh, Waters did employ a, a similar strategy to what he'd done in Multiple Maniacs. Uh, he used his own house and locations around Baltimore, uh, never really getting the proper permits. They're still kind of doing this guerrilla style, but he would usually get permission if he was filming on someone else's, in, like in a business or somewhere, like in the, when they shoot in the scene where Divine shoplifts the meat between her legs, you know, like they got permission to do that. They, Although Divine did apparently get arrested a couple of times shoplifting prior to that. I guess she was doing... Uh, method acting or something that's what she said <laughs> that's what divine said at least uh. well for instance the um the marbles residence with Con connie and raymond marbles house that was john waters house they used it pretty much exactly as it was they didn't redecorate it or anything that's just what john waters house looks like uh, and at the time mink stole was john waters roommate so she it was actually her house so they're filming in her house uh, but it only felt natural that they use mink's part of the house as Connie Marble's chamber in the film, uh, you know, where she has her office stuff and all that set up and shooting in, uh, in John and Mink's house felt relatively luxurious after filming in the trailer that served as a divine's residence, because after all, now they have central heat, they had electrical outlets and they had, they had bathrooms to use. Uh, I don't know what they were doing in the trailer. I guess just shit yeah, in the woods. Sounds about right. Or boxes <laughs> or boxes. Yeah. In at least one case. <laughs> well, one scene that was filmed at this location 
that's pretty memorable is the one where Divine and Crackers break into the Marvel's house to seek revenge after having received the aforementioned turd in the mail. And they lick all the furniture and everything. Uh, they, you know, the staircase banisters are licking all this stuff. Uh, it's a very strange scene. But uh, when the Marvels return home to relax, they find that their home and their furniture is rejecting them. You know, you guys remember yeah. the scene. Uh, so they, they yeah. sit on the couch and it pushes them off. So to pull off this complex special effect, Vince Piranio, he, uh, he ripped out all the springs and the insides of the furniture and he replaced them with himself. <laughs> uh, so basically he would hide inside of the couch uh, and he would just push the cushions off on cue. You know, really, really cutting edge stuff we've got here in the special <laughs> effects department. I love that we we would devote in t- like half an episode in our John uh, or our, uh, James Cameron series to how they pulled off some of those special effects. And here's like, yeah, then then he over here just hid inside the couch. <laughs> and when I said cushion, he pushed the cushion off. <laughs> that was that's it. That's how they pulled it off. So for the scenes where they needed other locations that weren't the Marvel's house or Divine's trailer. Uh, they would just kind of ask people around the neighborhood if they could film at their place. So basically they'd walk into a business and go, Hey, we're making a movie. Do you mind if we film a scene here? And then after, I don't think they had them sign anything, but uh, they'd get permission. And then after getting permission, they would film as quickly as possible before the people could start to get nervous about what they were filming. Like they, they, watch the scene and go, wait a second, (laughs) what the fuck? (laughs) So they would film it really quickly and then leave before they could change their mind. Hey, can Uh, we film here? Do you, do you mind if she uses this beef for a pussy? (laughs) (laughs) We will, we'll pay for the beef. (laughs) For the scene where the turd is mailed, you know, they go into a post office and that was the actual post office in John Waters neighborhood. It was a place where he like sent his mail from every day. So they just uh, went there and asked him if they could shoot. And in fact, the clerk working the counter was just the guy working at the post office that day. So they just like asked him if he wanted to play himself basically in the scene. Although I doubt that he knew that the package that he was filmed receiving contained an actual human turd. Uh, I'm going to say no. I'm gonna- <laughs> you know, I mailed something recently and <clears throat> they ask you like, where is this story is there, going? Is there any, anything harmful, any, you know, anything perishable chemicals, anything like that. But they never ask if there's a divine turd. I, I think, no. uh, listen, United States Postal Service, I, I think you're dropping the ball here. I mean, uh, you think they're dropping the ball, Todd, but it's really like they were like, okay, well, there's going to be a turd in this box. He's like, third. <laughs> Gosh, if I had a nickel for every, for every time. <laughs> Well, despite the uh, sometimes deplorable stuff happening on screen, off screen, everyone involved was very professional. You know, nobody threw a star hissy fit. Everyone arrived to set on time. Uh, The cast and technical crew all seemed to get along pretty well, at least after they fucking Fred was gone. At least they did. (laughs) Um, But and Waters actually, you know, he prohibited drugs and alcohol on set. Although he later found out that some of the cast and crew had snuck some stuff in. I think they were sniffing glue and stuff, probably, uh, is, is what they did. But he but he, he technically did not allow it, and he stayed sober while on set. And he would later say that everyone involved was deadly serious about making pink flamingos. We were a dedicated group, over-anxious, and driven to share our trashy vision with the world. Uh, there's a documentary called Midnight Movies from the margin to the mainstream. He says in there, quote, I was high when I wrote this film. I was not high when I made it. Although I will say he does, and I think it was the commentary, he does say that at the party, the guests are actually inhaling 
amyl nitrate poppers uh, during yeah. that scene. Yep, the poppers, and uh, you could buy them like legally at the drugstores at the time. And uh, I think that it wasn't but, that they used for like it's not like a something to like if somebody passes out, you wake them up or something like that. Is that what those I are? I cannot remember. Yeah, I don't know I anything about one time, but but he points out. Yeah, he he does point out in there that if you watch Divide's face during the scene, uh, you can tell point where <laughs> she starts laughing crazily and he says oh yeah it kicked in kicked in right there <laughs> that's funny uh but yeah i mean generally speaking though he kept a fairly tight set you know and he mink stola said this in interviews as well it's like we were not just kids goofing around like we rehearsed we showed up on time we knew our lines we knew our marks like we treated this like a real movie as much as we could on the budget that we had you know sometimes they would have to like i said shoot without permits and things like that but they were they were not just goofing off like they were they were in this to make a real movie. You know, they and they really had to be dedicated to this vision because Offset, real life was becoming a bit of an issue for some of the cast. You know, like I mentioned before, they were shooting once a week for over six months, which meant that for six days a week for six months, some of the actors had to live their regular lives looking like their characters. For David Lockery and Mink Stoll, this meant walking around with brightly colored hair. And remember, this is 1971. Not a lot of folks walking around with bright blue and bright red hair. This is pre-punk. This is like this is not something that you see at all, especially in you know Baltimore of all places. So uh, you couldn't just go like buy Manic Panic at Hot Topic <laughs> to dye your hair. You couldn't just go buy bright red and bright blue hair dye. Uh, so they had to get creative. So they would bleach their hair, and then David Lockery used the ink from a blue magic marker. He would like take the foam thing out of the inside of a magic marker and squeeze the ink out. And that's what he used to uh, to dye his hair. And then Mink Stoll just bought bright red ink and dyed her hair with that. Uh, but this stuff, because obviously it's not made to stay on your hair, so it would rub off on everything. It'd be all over their collars, on their clothes. Their bed sheets and pillowcases were just always stained red and blue. Uh, now, I don't know how they dyed their pubes. I, I don't know because you, <laughs> I could not find that story anywhere, but they definitely have blue and red pubes and maybe I hope they didn't use bleach on them because <laughs> that just I, makes me oh burn thinking God. about it. <laughs> I, it's it's hard to put. No, Lockery wasn't a Merkin. I don't know. It's hard to put anything past anybody on this movie. Yeah. That's true. That, that that's true um so they're having to live their life with like blue and red hair and this isn't this wasn't as big a deal for david lockery people always looked at him weird everywhere he went anyway because he had you know that even without the hair being dyed blue which he would do it sometimes anyway he's a weird looking dude you know he's got the weird shaped little mustache he's got long hair at a time when a lot of, not a lot of people did yet uh, although the, i guess by this time you had hippies who were growing their hair out long yeah. but david lockery was also perpetually unemployed so he didn't like have to go to work looking like this uh meek stoll however had a regular office job uh, during the week so after she dyed her hair john waters bought her a wig to wear to work to cover up her red hair and this wig never really seemed to fit right so one day david lockery suggested that she start wearing it backwards which she did, and according to Waters, wearing it backwards made her look like a, uh, quote, a Puerto Rican hooker, and she was never invited to a single office party. (laughs) (laughs) There's a picture of her in his autobiography wearing that wig, and that's not an inaccurate description. (laughs) 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 So now while uh, Lockery and Mink stole, they were inconvenienced, let's say, by their Pink Flamingos looks, uh, Divine had it a little bit worse, because Divine couldn't ever really leave the house except uh in the case of emergencies that's the only time she really left the house which in divine's case uh emergencies meant going out to eat so he did go out he did leave the house to go to eat but think about what divine looks like not in in 
the movie, but okay. in real life. Hairline shaved back halfway on, on his head, right? No eyebrows. Eyebrows are shaved off. What was left of his hair was dyed a hideous shade of yellow, and his lipstick that he wore for the film never really came off, so his lips were kind of permanently stained a faint pink color. And then to top it all off, when he wasn't working, he wore these like filthy one-piece white work suits, which John Waters says gave him the appearance of a demented, rather feminine garbage man. So you've got this... <laughs> Big dude, 300 pounds or close to it at this point. Head shaved halfway back, no eyebrows, pink stained face, walking around in a garbage man outfit <laughs> <laughs> in, in Baltimore in 1971. So yeah, had a tough time. My point is though, Pink Flamingos was a labor of love for most of the cast and crew and they were willing to do just about anything to get it made. But some of them did have their limits. So, you know, while you, you made the joke earlier, Gary, that, Hey, they probably did maybe bleach their pubes because people are willing to do just about anything on this film. It seems like there were some times when they said no. So for instance, John had a, he had scripted a scene where Cookie Mueller was supposed to smash a TV screen with a hammer while the TV was turned on. But she started to get nervous as they like got closer and closer to the day to film this scene. She started calling some of the TV repair shops in town. And she was like, hey, what would happen if I smash a TV with a hammer while the TV's still on? And they basically told her that the TV might explode. So you probably shouldn't do that. So she refused to do the scene. Uh, and that's the scene that it was going to be in actually ended up getting completely cut from the film anyway. So it's probably good that she did refuse to do it. Also, I don't know, she might could have died, which would have been bad. Uh, but also Mink Stoll, there was a scene that she had agreed to uh, uh, initially where uh, she was going to have her hair set on fire. And she knew this was coming and she didn't get really cold feet until the day of. Uh, probably because when she asked John Waters how he planned to pull off the stunt, he just said, well, I guess we'll put on lots of hairspray and someone will light it. And that was it. he did say that he would have someone off camera with a bucket of water, uh, but she still flat out refused. He also, I think he also like did a test on a strand of her hair and it just fizzled and smelled bad, which is what hair does when you burn it. So they, so they cut the scene. Yeah. John Waters says on the audio commentary uh, that uh, he was happy she changed her mind in retrospect because she would have ended up with third degree burns on her head yeah. and he would have ended up in jail. Yeah. So, so not, not ideal for anyone involved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, some other little fun, quick hits on the uh, making of the movie, I think are like, they had a, a guy named, uh, John Waters calls him a jive talking black man who they met in pre-production and they used his car like Connie and Raymond's car in the movie is that car and he tried to work him into some scenes he had made up on the set where Connie would like talk to a magic mirror would be like mirror mirror on the wall who's the filthiest one of all he would be a black pip in a zoot suit and a fedora that would <laughs> come on in a cloud mirror. of smoke yeah and he would say divide is but uh, they said uh, the special effects that. never worked right so yeah. there, you, you can so, see a couple of scenes where in, in the deleted stuff where she's talking to a mirror though. Mm -hmm. uh, so th th those scenes were filmed at least partially. Yeah. There was some stuff like that. I, I, one other little quick thing I thought was funny too. They said, Cotty and Raven, when they call the police to break up the birthday party, uh, he says that those are real directions. Like that could have got anybody to the, <laughs> to the trailer where it was. Yeah. He talks about but, that in one of the special features on the criterion disc where he goes around to different, um, locations, really just the place where the, the trailer was and the place where the marbles live, his old house. He goes and talks to the owners there because where the trailer was, that land's been all cleared. Uh, and it's like a nice neighborhood with a really pretty, like huge mansion there now but they they know that pink flamingos was filmed there it's this uh 
I think he's an astrophysicist or something. It's like a scientist, but they, he even says in that, he's like, yeah, if you watch them like driving to the trailer in the film, like that's the actual drive. So if you really paid attention and knew those roads in Baltimore, you could very easily find this place. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. What a little part I wanted to mention too, is that I don't, I don't, you know, whatever you think about John Waters in the deleted scenes, I think on the commentary, uh, he, he mentions a character that was going to be in the movie called Patty Hitler. Yeah. That's Pat. That's the character that Pat Moran was playing. Okay. I thought so. Yeah. So Patty yeah, yeah. Hitler that, you know, got cut out of the film. Him, but was going to be a person that was a friend of divine and had a bunch of swastikas and Nazi attire. I think she's the one who ends up telling like Connie and stuff where the party is or something. And yeah. uh, she's in the crowd at the birthday party scenes. Like you can kind of see it there, but uh, it never explains there why that got cut exactly. But I saw an interview later with John Waters where they asked him if anything was ever off limits for him. And I thought this was interesting. He said, quote, sure, I don't make Holocaust jokes. I'm not Jew. I'm not Jewish. I don't think I'm ever mean. That's the main thing. I make fun of things I like while most people make fun of things they don't like. That, in some way, is why I've been able to have this career for 50 years. Even in my books, I don't mention any of the studio executives or anything that give me trouble or I disagreed with. I never mention names like that because I cash the checks. I, I think that... I mean, that, that's a great quote because I think that does speak to why his movies have some longevity because like, kind of like I said at the beginning of the show, like he, there's obviously there's some really disgusting stuff that happens on screen, but there's, he is not a mean spirited filmmaker, you know, like he yeah. really is just wanting to shock people to make them laugh at what they can be shocked at because yeah, it's like at this point, like we said, pornography was starting to become mainstream. So like, what is taboo? What can I get that'll shock people and that'll make them see and, and laugh at themselves for being shocked by it. That's kind of what he's trying to do. And he doesn't do that for his whole career. Uh, I mean, he does definitely has like insane things in all of his movies, but at the beginning of his career, especially he's really just trying to get a rise out of people, but not doing it in a way that's mean to any, any specific group of people. So maybe that's that could be part of why he deleted that uh, Patty Hitler scene. Uh, also, it was part of a scene where like the there's another deleted scene where the uh, the marbles go to Divine's trailer and they kind of torture Edie. They like tie her up and they break eggs all over her and then put a baby bonnet on her. Although and then in the next scene when Divine comes in, they forgot to put the baby bonnet back on. So there's also a very bad continuity <laughs> issue in because they forgot to that they forgot to put that back on her. But in that scene, like they find the trailer because of talking to Patty Hitler. So continuity wise, if you're going to cut one scene, you also have to cut the other. And I don't know what which one was decided to be cut first, but you can watch all those scenes on on the Blu-ray. I mean, they're they're very easy to find. They're they're out there. He still has all the footage. All right, so we, we know that some of these actors do have their limits. Like we said, Mick Stoll and, and uh, Cookie Mueller, they, they had things that they said no to. Uh, one person that doesn't have the same level of limits, let's say, is, of course, uh, Divine, which means it is time to talk about the dog shit scene. Uh, we, I mean, not that we haven't mentioned it yet, but let's talk about how it got made. It's the reason we're all here, folks. <laughs> it's the, the reason we've gathered here today. <laughs> so uh, to me, reading about this, one of the most remarkable things about this scene is just how much intent it was made with. This wasn't some throwaway thing. This wasn't something they came up with on the spot. Uh, this wasn't like an off-the-cuff moment that they captured. They weren't just like, hey, that dog's taking a shit. Let's, uh, let's film you eating a turd. Uh, it, it was planned out way, way in advance. John and Divine had been planning it for over a year. 
See, Waters had learned on Multiple Maniacs and on Mondo Trasho that even bad publicity was still publicity. Remember on Mondo Trasho, they were in the news because their their uh, one of their actors got arrested, the nude mm-hmm. hitchhiker, and then they sold out all of their movie screenings. Same thing happened on Multiple Maniacs. Like they got this reputation and it sold out all of their movie screenings. So he knew that if you if you did something that got people talking, it would create a reaction and people were going to want to see it. So the dog dookie scene that was created as a publicity stunt because he knew that it would get people talking, but he also knew that in order to get people talking, it had to be real. It had to be one continuous shot. There couldn't be any kind of like cutaway reaction shot that would give him a chance to replace the real dookie with fake dookie that was suggested to him. And he's like, no, people have to see it there. We can't have any, editing or camera trickery. He wanted the audience to see the dog, take a dump, divine, pick it up and eat it right before your eyes with no cuts. He would, he said, my audience demanded as much. (laughs) So this ended up being the last thing that they shot in the film. Uh, It also ended up being one of the most difficult things they shot for the film because uh, of course they don't have a dog who was like trained to just take a shit on command. (laughs) They just, it's just, I think it was Pat Moran's dog that they used. They hired an extra to walk the dog. And then the crew, which consisted of John Waters, Mary Vivian Pierce, Danny Mills, and of course, Divine. They followed this dog through the streets of Baltimore, just waiting for him to poop. Uh, This goes on for an hour or so. In one interview, I think John Waters said like three hours. They're walking around the streets of Baltimore, just waiting on this dog to poop. Divine's in full drag. And they're not really like, they're following the dog wherever it goes. Like they're not leading it in places. They're just like, let's follow the dog because it's going to find a place where it wants to poop. (laughs) And so they're just going through all these Baltimore neighborhoods. People are staring at him. Of course, if the dog had dropped a squat right there, there on the street where a bunch of people were, they still would have filmed the scene because they had to get the take. So it's very possible that they could have done this with a bunch of onlookers. Uh, It didn't end up happening that way, but if it, if that's when the what the dog had decided, that's when it was going to happen. So they're walking this dog around, and he's not doing anything because the dog's nervous. He's got a bunch of people following him. He's getting, you know, yeah, it's hard to take a shit in public, right? It's uh, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to get it to come out. Every time I try, <laughs> I freak out last minute. <laughs> so, so uh, all these people, and and there's a noisy camera there that's probably freaking him out, mm-hmm. you know. So. They had to come up with a solution. First part of that solution is they switched to a different camera. They they used a spring wound camera that was less conspicuous. It's smaller. It's the one that they shot all of Mondo Trasho on. Remember Mondo Trasho is silent. It doesn't, this camera doesn't record any kind of sound. They also shot, shot the uh, birthday party scene uh, in this movie using that spring wound camera. So they switched to that uh, so that it would maybe make the dog less nervous. And then they gave the dog an enema. Uh, they used a hair dye a- applicator, I think, and filled it up with saline water, like warm saline water, and gave him an enema. Somebody did. I don't know. John Water says he didn't do it. He's not sure who did it, but somebody on crew gave the dog an enema to try to get it to go. So after walking the dog a little bit more, it finally happens. You know, he squats down. He's going. Uh, it's very small, little little pieces in there. I can't believe we're talking about this in such detail, but Ooh, <laughs> it's very small. And even Divine looks at it. She's like, that little thing? You want me to do that? And John Waters is like, yes, just do it. This might be the only shit this dog takes all day. So let's do it. We got we to gotta go with what we have to work with here. And he also told Divine, hey, if you throw up, that's fine. Good. Uh, don't worry about that. Just smile so we can get a shit-eating grin. <laughs> that was his direction uh. to Divine during this. And they did it. They did it in one take. 
they had no intention of doing retakes. <laughs> I'm sure Divine was pretty happy about that. I'm sure Divine probably would not have done a second take if they had asked for it, but they do it in one take. Uh, you can actually see Divine gagging twice during the scene. Uh, but, you know, Divine's a professional, so she still keeps that shit-eating grin on her face the whole time. <laughs> it is it is something else. Uh, but John Waters yells cut, and Divine immediately runs off to, to use some mouthwash. Uh, and with that scene, Pink Flamingos was in the can, uh, was a month over schedule and about $2,000 over budget. Apparently the night after, uh, Divide did call a hospital emergency hotline uh, and pretended to be a mob whose son had eaten dog shit. Yeah, and she got a little, I think I, she started thinking about it and got a little bit worried that it could could hurt her. <laughs> yeah, it was told, uh, Divide was told that the worst thing that would happen was that you might get white worms, I think is what... Yeah, said. which is tapeworm. Yeah. yeah. Years later, uh, in one interview, they ask uh, John Waters, why? And, uh, what? Why would they do that to Divine? And uh, Waters replied, uh, it was a little piece of dog shit, and it made her a star. <laughs> He's right, though. I mean, that <laughs> Divine has a pretty successful career. Uh, not a long career, unfortunately, but a pretty successful career. And honestly, it probably wouldn't have happened. If not for this scene, I mean, that's the truth of it. And same, I mean, John Waters career has a lot to owe to that scene. It's what is the scene that got people talking. I mean, there's a lot of, and it doesn't happen until the very end of the movie, but it's the scene that got people talking when this movie became like a midnight movie. Uh, this is the scene people knew about it going in, but they might not have known it was the last scene of the movie. So they have to walk, wait through the whole movie to get to it, you know? So it's kind of, it's honestly genius uh, from a marketing standpoint. So if we ever want the show to really blow up, guys, Todd, I've got some. God news. damn it! <laughs> you knew it was going to be you. I, yeah, I feel. <laughs> and it's sad because, like, I've got little dogs. You've got Max. So. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's going to be Ooh. a big one. Oh, well, Waters ended up editing this film in the attic of his house on what he calls the most pitiful tools imaginable. He says, uh, there was no work print. The easily scratched original was run through a projector every time I wanted to watch a cut. There were no A and B rolls to hide the splices. The extra sound was recorded directly onto a magnetic projector that sometimes worked. So it's a miracle that this movie got edited and finished without being scratched to hell. Cause he's just running the original film from the camera through the projector every Jeez. time, which is not what you do. You make copies uh, and then you, you edit on those copies. It's called a work print. So uh, he didn't have that to work with. So I, how this movie ended up in the shape that it did is honestly a miracle. Uh, but once the film was edited, it ran for two and a half hours, uh, which John, Waters uh, kind of made him panic because uh, that meant that an entire hour of subplots had to be removed uh, because John Waters firmly believes that no movie should run more than 90 minutes. So for the film's narration, uh, John Waters originally wanted this local celebrity named Mr. Ray. Uh, he owned a wig store in Baltimore uh, and he had this like very distinct voice with one of the thickest Baltimore accents imaginable. Let Mr. Ray give you softer, sexier hair today. Call 466-4200 now or visit Mr. Ray in Baltimore for the best hair weave at the lowest price in town. Basically, he would be the voiceover guy on the commercials. It's like, uh, who's that guy here that yells at you? Jay Gilstrap. Jay Gilstrap, yeah. It's like, he was that guy, but he sold wigs. So, <laughs> but, but he had this really thick, really thick Baltimore accent. So 
Waters, he called him his idol, <laughs> but he really wanted this guy to narrate the film because he loved his voice. And he stopped by the guy's wig shop and asked him. He asked Mr. Ray, and Mr. Ray immediately turned him down. Wouldn't even consider. He's like, no, get out. No. I guess he was kind of self-conscious about his voice or something, or he thought maybe he thought John Waters was making fun or something. But John Waters legitimately just wanted him to narrate the movie. But the guy turned him down. So John Waters actually decides to do the narration himself, but he imitates Mr. Ray's voice and accent, and he call, he refers to himself as Mr. J. Uh, so that's John Waters. He, it's not, he's not credited in the film, but that is John Waters doing the narration. She also has your address, asshole. <laughs> That's that was actually really good. <laughs> uh, so once completed, the big premiere for Pink Flamingos was planned in 1972 at the University of Baltimore. Uh, Waters and the Dreamlanders they did their usual marketing campaign, which was to hit the streets and give out handbills and put up a bunch of posters, basically doing this guerrilla style, you know, street team style. Uh, the, those posters, by the way, described the film as an exercise in bad taste. Well, whatever they did, it worked. Uh, the premiere was a hit. The audience really seemed to get it. Everyone loved it. Uh, they were laughing in all the right places and shrieking in horror at others. And they gave the film a standing ovation as the final credits rolled. And it ended up selling out all nine premiere showings. Yeah, he'd actually done some uh, test screenings before that premiere, too, just to see the reactions. And he said in... Uh, one interview I'd had the nine best test screenings you could possibly have in Baltimore where people just sort of staggered out of the auditorium. <laughs> uh, I can't know if it was the test screenings or somewhere where they would give people like the pink flamingo barf bag, but like pink. Yeah. Flim I think that was later flim. on. Yeah. Yeah. The flamingo, the which if you have the criterion Blu-ray, it comes with a reproduction of that. Yeah. Which is, which is great. If I ever meet John waters, that's the one item I want him to autograph. <laughs> that's nice. That's a good idea. That barf bag. Uh, the first uh, officially showed, though, yeah, like you said, at University of Baltimore, uh, sponsored by the Baltimore Film Fest. And the reason they did that is that was the only way they could screen it without going through that notorious film censor I mentioned, uh, Mary oh. Avara. Uh, Water says she hated me. Uh, <laughs> and it said a year later when Pink Flamingos was playing commercially, she cut three seeds out, but she. He said she left the scene with Divide and the Dog in there, though, which I thought showed a lot about Maryland's community standards. <laughs> <laughs> I looked her uh, up and I was trying to hear her talk. She, she like when people would ask her about him, like she would not. She was like, John Waters, I don't want to talk about that man. Makes my yeah. mouth feel dirty. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. She's um, if you watch the documentary Divine Trash, uh, which is also on that Criterion release as a, it's a full feature-length documentary about early John Waters through the release of Pink Flamingos, basically. But they interview her in it. Uh, and so she's she's in several scenes where they interview her, and she just, like, you can tell she just despises <laughs> John Waters. Uh, she's very uptight. And it's it's honest, I think it's hilarious that they included her in the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> well, after the film had a successful premiere at Baltimore, the University of Baltimore, uh, it was actually picked up for distribution by New Line Cinema. New Line Cinema, uh, of course, we know it now. It, the house that Freddie built, that's when they got really famous, was uh, or really big, was with Nightmare on Elm Street. But they went on to do, you know, Lord of the Rings, and they're a pretty big a very big company now, but at the time they, they kind of started out as a um, exploitation distribution company. Their first, one of their first big hits was uh, doing, uh, was screening reefer madness. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, they they bought the rights to Reefer Madness and they would show it on you know college campuses and stuff. That's kind of how they made their name. So they're still a pretty small company, uh, but they do specialize in like exploitation films at this point. So they purchased the distribution rights for Pink Flamingos and then they book it at a theater in Boston for its first commercial screening. But for some reason, they booked it at a gay porn movie theater. <laughs> And uh, I don't know why, but it didn't go well. It did not go over well with the audience there. <laughs> and that sc- that screening was a disaster. So they, uh, they, I don't know, they had they kind of had to re-strategize. And New Line didn't really know what to do with the film. See, Waters wanted it booked in art house theaters. But New Line was kind of unsure about that. They're like, I don't know if this is for the art house crowd. Uh, and they ended up actually shelving the movie for a year while they tried to figure it out. Waters says, I went insane. Uh he talks about it a little bit. He says, it's not that I was against gay porno theaters. Uh, it was just that Pink Flamingos always did terrible and real exploitation theaters. Surrealism and irony are two things that exploitation audiences hate. They know you're making fun of them. Mm-hmm. Well, Waters really wanted it shown in New York City. Uh, you know, that was the place where he had first been exposed to underground filmmaking. And yet he was virtually unknown in, in the city at this point. But The film finally did make its New York premiere at midnight on February 2nd, 1973 at the Orpheum Theater. Uh, But the Orpheum is not where it it's run as a as a midnight movie sensation really began. You see, during that year when New Line was holding on to the film, Waters, who was broke and living in New Orleans uh, with, uh, like I mentioned before, Danny Mills and and Bonnie Pierce, uh, just can't afford anything but rice and beans. Like he's just dead broke and doesn't know what he's going to do. And his movie is just being held by New Line. And he keeps calling them, begging and begging New Line to open the film at the Elgin Theater, which is the same theater where uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's El Topo had recently started its legendary run as a midnight movie. Remember, that was like the first midnight movie. So he knew about that. He wanted Pink Flamingos to open there for that crowd. So after many, many phone calls, he was finally able to convince Bob Shea and New Line to uh, to put Pink Flamingos there. And it premiered at the Elgin on February 16th, 1973, as the, as the movie theater's uh, new Friday night midnight attraction. You know, it's funny. As far as New Line not knowing what to do with it, it's interesting to hear that from, I'm assuming that's like Waters' perspective. Because the other side of that story, I was like looking through things and like, uh, to hear people from New Line talk about it, Elgin was always the intent. Uh, Bob Shea, or Robert Shea, who owned New Line, was super familiar with what we'll call interesting movies. Because, uh, I mean, in fact, that guy would be an interesting series himself because like, he, he's like a law school guy in the yeah. 60s, drafted to Vietnam, wanted to be a filmmaker, skipped away to Sweden to... Uh, not do the Vietnam thing, moved back, worked in a film program for like the museum of modern art. Uh, he was making like his old short films and stuff too. And he was getting rejected. I, he taught us about it. One interview I saw like getting rejected by like Janus films. And, uh, anyway, he started new line in like 1967. And I know a lot of people like you mentioned, just to start associate new line with like Freddy Krueger for good reason. But, uh, it goes from movies like this to like Lord of the Rings, which is a crazy story. But you mentioned reefer madness. He talks about that. Uh, they had played it at, at the Elgin before, and he had a relationship with Ben Barinholtz, who was Mm -hmm. one of the main guys at the Elgin. I even saw like stuff talking about reefer madness might be the, birth of the midnight movie in a lot of ways and, yeah uh, i mean there were there were a lot of precursors to what what is considered like the 
the first midnight movies, which, you know, El Topo is generally considered the first. There were, there were other movies that played at midnight before El Topo. El Topo was just the one that like, it played for months and months and months and months. And it became like an event. And that's when like the, the sensation of people going out to see these like off the wall, uh, on the fringe movies at midnight became a thing. Yeah, but to hear him talk about it, Shay kind of describes like with that, the success of like El Topo, that helped them to make the decision to pick up something like Pete Flamingos in the first place. Uh, Not to say that he totally understood everything either, because uh, in fact, Bob Shay had rejected Waters at least once already. Uh, In one of the interviews I was reading, he he had a quote that said, I didn't know who John Waters was from Adam when his 16 millimeter film case arrived in my loft. From the trusty mailman, it was a film called Multiple Maniacs. I looked at it and I said, whoa, I have no clue what's going on here. Uh, But he says he was like super sensitive about rejecting people because he'd been done that way himself and he didn't want to insult anybody. So he said he wrote John Waters then and said, I don't know who you are, but your stuff is interesting. It doesn't quite make it for me, but if you get something else that has a little bit more excitement and production value, We'd love to look at your next work. So he says three months later, he got Pink Flamingos. Per John Waters, he, a quote from him, he said, uh, when Bob Shea of New Line first saw the film, he kept stopping the projector and rewinding to make sure he'd seen what he thought he saw. Uh, <laughs> and when he invited me to New York, and I don't know to this day whether or not he was kidding, he said, do not bring your friends. <laughs> <laughs> he might have thought they were just playing them their real life versions i know i know in one interview i saw with bob shea uh this uh, might be what john waters is talking about there he says that like the scene that he kept rewinding the scene that made him go like we've got to get this is the yeah. scene where elizabeth coffee whips her dick out <laughs> and no wave, he, and he 100% says locker. that he says for him it was the scene with uh they're driving down the road and the cute hitchhiker sitting on the farm fence. And uh, he said, after I saw that film, I realized it contained real people doing real things on camera. I called John Waters immediately said, this is incredible. And he knew that people were going to see that and lose their fucking minds. <laughs> That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it was. Uh, which is if you're trying to build a cult for a film and you don't have a lot of money to do it, you need something like that. You know, you need something that's going to get people talking. So they, they book it at the Elgin. And as people begin to see it, word of mouth started to get around. And by late March, 1973, the film went to three and then five nights a week at the Elgin. So not just Friday night, it's playing five nights a week at the Elgin. By mid April, it is the talk of New York, the most infamous underground film since Andy Warhol's Chelsea girls. And, you know, it, it got some good reviews during its New York run. Uh, Fran Leibovitz, uh, who was a critic for Andy Warhol's Interview Magazine, said it was, quote, one of the sickest films ever made and one of the funniest, which, of course, ended up making it on the poster later on. Yeah, uh, and I don't even think they had a rating for it at the time, but uh, it was crazy. I think it was the 25th anniversary stuff I was looking at. Uh, they were talking about that John Waters demanded the MP. AA review it so they could give it a rating so they could so it could <laughs> he wanted the, an X rating yeah like it him and New Line wanted the NC-17 on it or whatever so well, NC-17 uh, didn't exist back when it came out you you mean for the re-release yeah yeah for the re-release Cause, oh yeah because it was retroactively uh rated NC-17 yes 
Yeah, they uh, they said they had, had waters. Like, there was an interview with him about it. He was talking about it. I, he was like, I was just really giddy about the MPA having to watch it again. And, <laughs> and, um, I love that. <laughs> he was like reminiscing. He was talking about it. He was like, man, he's like 25 years ago, Slub Dance might have accepted this. <laughs> I love that he called it Slub Dance, though. Um, and it, but yeah, you were talking about Andy Warhol's uh, interview. Like it. Andy Warhol, like supposedly there was like some conversation he had with like uh, Federico Fellini was visiting and that yeah. was the suggestion Warhol gave him was like, you got to see Pink Flamingos. Yeah, he told Fellini when Fellini visited New York, he's like the one must see in New York is Pink Flamingos, which is I love, which is wonderful. I love that. But, you know, not everyone loved it. Uh, when Variety reviewed it, they called it surely one of the most vile, stupid and repulsive films ever made. The Detroit Free Press had this r- incredible quote in, in their review that said, like a septic tank explosion, it has to be seen to be believed. Which you know John Waters loved that quote. Yeah, he, that loves, he loved that quote. Uh, so I'm wondering, Gary, how the internet has reacted to uh, Pink Flamingos in the 50 years since its release. I'm sure, I'm sure there's nothing... I'm sure there's nothing out there negative that anyone has to say about this, right? Everyone on the internet is so level-headed mm-hmm. about this kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> there's, uh, there's so many people, you know, luckily with the rise of the internet, though the world, you know, Pink Flamingos can find its audience for sure. There's plenty of people who love it. But also it means that plenty of people are aware of this movie now and have seen it that, well, now they need a nap. So firstly, let me just get out of the way that plenty of people rate this movie one star or less. And essentially it's because they hate rape, shit eating, animal cruelty. Uh, My wife will be happy to know that I think I literally saw like a hundred one star reviews based solely on animal cruelty. Mm -hmm. So I will mention that a few times, but I'm trying to get the reviews a little more depth or entertainment than just those things being the bothersome aspect of it so but rest assured if those things bothered you plenty of other people hate that you're you're not alone (laughs) uh like this uh review from diosil who says uh title peak flamingo sucks straight to the point right Uh, (laughs) this movie has absolutely no cinematic value orgasmo would win an oscar compared to this piece of trash I don't see anything entertaining about screwing a chicken. John Waters stated that he got the chicken from a slaughterhouse and it was set to be killed anyways. Well, who cares? Waters is going to die someday too. Maybe we should shove a watermelon up his ass to see how much he's willing to do for the sake of cinema. At least Honestly, that's probably written into his will, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it probably is. Anyone who's okay with this is a morally desensitized individual and I pity them. Why is he talking trash about Orgasmo? That's a good movie. Well, I mean, I like it orgasm. was better than this. I like orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> Rodolfo Andrade, half star here, says, I cannot seriously understand the fervent defenders of this garbage, how they can, in any circumstances, enjoy a series of sequences of incestuous blowjobs, cub vomit sex shots, chicken killings, genital mutilation, human rape, pornography, shitty imagery, and giving a, them how they can get any sort of purpose behind it. Seriously, how can anyone reward this crap as an artistic accomplishment in any sense or form? Perhaps the only thing that maybe I can allow to peak flamingos 
is it's deal with controversial topics that even today are controversial, such as abortion, kidnapping, LGBTQ issues, incest, and sexual fetishes. But in any case, this film is still a contrived, hollow, disgusting, vulgar piece of trash. I am taking a bath now. I just Weird like how many adjectives that. this person used. <laughs> Got a thesaurus for that one. Yeah, uh, this review said a junior college class of deviants could have come up with a better film. As a matter of fact, I have seen better film on a bathtub. What? I guess oh, like 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 the scum. Yeah. Like oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. That's bad. That's that's dumb. I, that's why I included it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Table tennis gave it a half star. And said, "Bro, what episode of RuPaul's Drag Race is this?" And my God. You're telling me Alvin from the Chipmunks saw that shit? Nah, who the fuck let that slide? What? I had to look that up, so I'm going to help you. I know, I know, (laughs) same reaction. In the Chipmunks movie, John Waters makes a cameo, Mm -hmm. and they're on a plane together, and in the conversation, Waters asks him about doing something with him someday, and Alvin says, no thanks, I saw Pink Flamingos. You've never seen a chipmunk in first class before? Well, actually, I recently flew next to the chipmunks, and they were ladies. Hey, don't judge me. I saw pink flamingos. I love wow. that. Yeah, it's just, that is that is kind of weird. <laughs> but, uh, I saw pink flamingos. That's a t-shirt. How how that isn't a t-shirt. No thanks, I saw That's pink actually fl- not a bad yeah. t-shirt I did. No thanks, I saw pink flamingos. <laughs> Good morning, says, in technical respects, this film is total amateur night. I've seen freshman film students handle a camera and a razor blade far better than this. (laughs) Content-wise, water clearly. Sorry. (laughs) 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 That's... Now, that's dark that's dark and funny and I, that's, i'm here for that yeah content wise waters clearly tries to push the envelope as far as it will go but to what purpose like the awful last house on the left the way pink flamingos test the sensors has very little impact or meaning in the post clockwork orange era incidentally orange not only pushed the envelope further it did it earlier and it also did it to espouse a powerful message flamingos has no such message as a result, this ineffective piece of shock cinema is both completely empty and devoid of any sort of entertainment whatsoever. Zero stars. It is pure crap. Avoid it. Mm. Rabbit unleashed. Half star. A friend showed me this movie yesterday and I viewed it with no expectations or knowledge of what it was. It reminded me of a movie that middle year high school students would make. There are no funny jokes, plot lines lame, acting unashamedly bad. For very large stretches, it's just boring, but that boredom is interspersed revolting elements, like a guy showing his naked rear end on the screen for a long period, someone torturing a chicken to death during a sex scene, dividing a piece of fresh dog feces. I don't understand what anybody gets out of this, and I don't like animal cruelty. What offended me was not that the chicken was killed, but that it was tortured. So I left that in there. There you go. There's an animal one. There's one. Matt uh, Halfstar says... My first John Waters film, coincidentally, also my last John Waters film. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, this one was just written very angrily. That's why I'm going with it. John Q. Public, aka Denzel Washington, wrote this review. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I hated this movie! 
This movie was so bad that I seriously considered committing suicide after watching it. I could spend the rest of my life writing about how bad this movie is, and I still would not be able to convey what a piece of shit it is. If you ever want to set yourself on fire, drink liquid plumber, then go ahead and watch this movie. It will hurt you just as bad. You know what? It will probably hurt even worse than cutting your scrotum off with a rusty razor and pouring salt all over the wound. Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm no doctor. I'm not a fan. Here's a fun one. Uh, Isaac Irvin, one star. I'm sorry I made a mistake. I did not know that Divine was a man. I'm not into things like that. (laughs) (laughs) Guando says, uh, I just like Guando's review. I'll just skip to the end. It's a half star. And uh, it it just says, it boggles my mind that the same guy who did this movie also made hairspray. And if I ever find the guy who smothered that chicken during the rape scene, I'm going to bite his nose off. But seriously, though, if they were going to try and make it shocking, they could have at least made it shocking. I wish death upon everyone involved in this production, except for wow. the egg lady. <laughs> well, at least still loves Edie. <laughs> Raby gave it a half star and said, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> the, second, the second person. <laughs> I yeah, and I'm not even including all of them that said something along those lines, but they need to take a nap for real. It's a movie. Let's move to... Uh, but astronaut half star when I'm a half hour in and I'm already thinking, well, that's too much rape for one movie. You get a half star. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I just had this. I just had an image of this dude watching and going, and eh, that's too much rape. <laughs> yep, there we go. Yeah, right. There. That's it. <laughs> uh, how about James bondage here? Half star plot twist. This film was the little turd in the box. <laughs> That's clever. That's clever. I, I'm points for, for creativity. Eggy gave it a half star. You think they'd be fan? I know you think they'd really be a fan. Uh, man, was I uncomfortable! At what point are you just watching niche porn? I've been seeking out surreal films like Mirror and Mulholland Drive, and this, hoping I can enter the genre, but I am not getting much out of it. I think I'm starting to lose my sense for cinema. Or maybe you're all just insane. This movie does nothing for me, and I'm kind of glad about that. God, Tarantino plays it safe compared to this. This one is just rough, so I'm sorry. Uh, Half Star from Orpheus. Anytime I see anyone say anything good about Pink Flamingos, like, but it's a heckin' queer film, or you're supposed to hate it, Chud, I feel like I've been transported into a dimension where the only social media is Twitter and everybody choice soy milk by the gallon. Not too inaccurate of a description of the letterbox community. You didn't like this film. You can't even pretend you did. You just lie about liking it because you heard people say it's transgressive and a masterpiece that John Waters is a filthy genius or some shit. Nobody enjoyed watching this film, and that's the point. If the end of the story was that everybody gave it a half star after seeing it, as I'm sure Waters surely wanted, I wouldn't have written this review, but it seems there is apparently some sort of MK Ultra psyop at work responsible for people defending this movie and lying to themselves that they liked it because they don't want to be the guy that doesn't like pink flamingos. I am a bisexual man and I feel some level of pride for being such. If this film is as important cornerstone of the community, I will denounce my sexuality and proclaim myself to have been cured. If pink flamingos continues to be seen as an icon of the LGBTQ, I will gladly travel to Saudi Arabia and get chucked off a rooftop. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> Holy a, little, crap. a little extreme there, Woo! but I mean, this is a divisive film. I get that. But at the time that it was released, you know, this movie 
gained a cult following very, very quickly. Uh, it was just like, like deep throw it had been like uh, El Topo had been like, it just became like this thing that you, if you were part of, especially part of the counterculture at all, you just kind of had to see. And when it started playing at the Elgin theater, it ran as the midnight feature there through January of 1974. It ran for 48 weeks at the Elgin, almost an entire year. Uh, by then though, uh, the Elgin, uh, you know, Ben Barinholtz, the owner of the Elgin, he said, you know, you started getting people from out of town, the bridge and tunnel people is what he calls mm. them. You know, the bridge and tunnel people started coming in and they would just, like throw shit at the screen. And, you know, it was like people who weren't there to really enjoy the film. They were there to like uh, cause a ruckus. And he started, he said it started to not become fun anymore. So they closed at the Elgin, uh, but less than a month later, it appeared in a uh, revival house in Manhattan called the New Yorker. And it ran Friday and Saturday nights there at midnight for another 45 Jeez. weeks. By this time, the movie had grossed over a million dollars. Remember $10,000 budget. So a highly profitable. Uh, it had another eight week run after the New Yorker. Uh, and all in all, the movie ran more or less continuously in New York for two full years. And it would have other runs later on. Like it, it opens up, uh, I think that uh, it might have been at the New Yorker, where it opens up at a couple other theaters for another like 40, 45 weeks twice in the 70s and like within the next five years. So it's running continuously in, somewhere at midnight, honestly, for the better part of like 10 years. It always feels unfathomable to think about a movie running that long. Mm. Like every time no, we talk about one of these movies doing mm. that, it's just crazy. Well, release strategies are so weird these days anyway, and movies don't have a chance to create, even cult movies don't have a chance to create that kind of audience anymore. It's like it'll premiere, I mean, this type of movie or anything, any modern movie that's comparable to this would be lucky to get a theatrical release at all. Now it just goes straight to streaming. But if it does go to the theater, like a like Skinamarink recently, it's on streaming within what two months or something mm -hmm. like that, you know. So uh, it's a very different environment now. But uh, at the time, I mean, and this, well, this wasn't exactly like the norm. I mean, running for a full year for two years, then for practically ten years, um, that's that was unheard of even then. That's a longer run than El Topo had. Uh, but once they found their audience for the film, you know, New Line Cinema they really put marketing into overdrive. You mentioned the the barf bags that they use, which is a great promo item. Uh, they would pick, they basically, they everywhere that they opened it outside of New York, they would pick the best art house theater in each city and they'd show it there. And if they had to, they would nurse it until it found its cult audience, until it found that cult in that city. They got prestigious universities to show the film. They sent John Waters and Divine on this big press tour. Uh, they screened the film at the Cannes Film Festival in 1976. So this is four years after the movie. They're still they're still sending this movie out four years later. Uh, John Waters, is, by this time, has already made another movie <laughs> by the time they're going to the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, but they sent it to the Cannes Film Festival in 1976, basically to attract foreign buyers so they could release it internationally. And they managed to sell the rights in England, Australia, France, Germany, Switzerland, and Canada. And then to top it all off, that same year, 1976, the Museum of Modern Art included it in its bicentennial salute to American humor. Uh, one interesting little fact about all of this, though, it is still banned in Hicksville, New York. Uh, I'm sure you probably saw that, Justin, but <laughs> yeah, uh, it's still illegal to show pink flamingos there. I love that. And this was the, yeah. I, this was from an article I was looking at. They researched this like literally like last year, the end of last year, and uh, asked John Waters about it. And uh, he said, quote, I never won 
uh, we're talking about obscenity cases. He said, I mm-hmm. never won. Uh, because at midnight, Pink Flamingos is joyous. It's exciting. The audience loves it. But if you're sworn in on jury duty in a courthouse sitting there next to a stranger watching a singing asshole at 730 in the morning, I promise you, <laughs> it is obscene. <laughs> it's all about geography. I would just plead guilty, which was a $1,000 fine. And the lawyers usually cost more than that. Uh, he, he goes on to say, uh, still, in Hicksville, New York, on Long Island, technically, if they ever show Pink Flamingos, Bob Shea, the head of New Line, and I can go to prison because we signed a thing <laughs> saying that if it ever played there, we would go. And I do believe Pink Flamingos may have played in Hicksville. I don't know if I'm wanted by the police. I'd ever drive by that town just in case. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it has. It's been banned in a lot, uh, several countries, but uh, but it did get international distribution, you know. And uh, even now, this film. It's 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 impressive that a movie that's fifty years old now, movie turned fifty last year, uh, can still be seen as shocking. Like that's unusual, honestly. Usually, things that were shocking fifty years ago now are just like pretty quaint, you know, yeah. passe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you guys, Gary, was it, you've made a couple of comments that made me think this was your first time seeing this. Was that right? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't ever think I'd sat and watched the. I movie feel like you would have. Uh, remembered it yeah yeah <laughs> i think when your... we were in our long history of friendship there's been a moment or two where you've shown a scene or something of this i feel like i remember yeah. divine eating shit i knew there was an asshole in the movie you know but <laughs> i don't think i've ever watched like i don't think i could I have told down. you the story of pink flamingos what it was about yeah. or anything gotcha so. gotcha uh and you todd this was your first time seeing it all the way through as well, uh, yeah said? i think i'm gonna probably echo uh gary here i do recall seeing the infamous scenes um at, probably shown to me by you justin but uh I love the idea that I'm just showing you guys all the gross shit from Flamingos. <laughs> I feel like that's how it happened. Uh, yeah. I feel like you're the person who first showed me like Antichrist, and it was oh, not the sure movie. Was. It was just <laughs> the ending. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys, um, as first time, as a first time experience watching Pink Flamingos, uh, I have to ask, how did you feel? Because I've seen this movie. A lot. I've seen this movie quite a few times, <laughs> like probably uh, 10 times. I bet I've seen this Do movie you 10 rec- times. Because I feel like this might lend some context. Do you remember how old you were when you first saw it? When I first saw this, I was probably in my mid-20s. Okay. Um, I was probably in my mid-20s because it was probably, because this movie was really hard to find for a long, right. long time. Uh, and finally, there was a series of... Um, it, it might have been early 20s, but it, it, there was a series of John Waters movies that were re-released on DVD during like the, the big DVD boom of the, like the early 2000s, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and this was released on DVD. Uh, it was a double feature DVD because they were all released that way. Uh, that was this and Female Trouble oh, okay. were released uh, as a two disc set. And that's where I first saw it uh, was I, I bought that site on scene just knowing the reputation right. of the film. Uh, so that's what I first experienced. It was, yeah, it was, it was like the early two thousands. I was probably in my early twenties, early to mid twenties. Um, 
It's well, uh, it's not a secret. I think mentioned it before here multiple times. I think we even mentioned it on our last episode that um, I'm from a pretty religious background and didn't get a lot of didn't get a lot of uh, exposure to certain films when they would have hit at a certain age. And I feel like Rocky Horror Picture Show is one of those where most folks experience that film in their, you know, early, uh, like early teens, you know, and it becomes this thing, of course, experiencing it in a theater where people are literally interacting with the film also lends to that, uh, that whole experience. And I feel like Pink Flamingos is one of them. However, having seen this as an almost 40 year old for the first time, I don't get a lot of that stuff, but my role here on this show is the fresh perspective. So having seen this for the first time and looking at it, I feel like I'm, tr again, and trying to remain positive about all the things, it would be easy for me to just be like, I don't like it, I don't get it, it sucks, whatever. But looking at John Waters in his life and coming up and getting into filmmaking, I feel like, and we've talked about the Dreamlanders as being these outcasts, um, you know, the quote unquote weirdos and the whole thing. And, and first of all, who hasn't felt like a weirdo or an outcast or an outsider at some point in their life. So that makes it very relatable. But when you start to get into an art that you're putting out to audiences, you kind of start to look at the merits of things. Now with the first film, multiple maniacs, yeah, very amateurish, you know, uh, you know, experimenting with a lot of the technology we've mentioned before, the folks that are in his films are not trained actors. So you kind of, all of that stuff comes across on the screen, but now having sat through the first one and now sitting through the second one, I'm starting to look for more things where John Waters has something to say other than look at this. Isn't this weird? So, you know, looking at, looking at these things, I find myself, especially let's stay with pink, Flamingo, pink flamingos here. I found myself asking the question why. So divine is this character who's the filthiest, uh, what, what, what's the quote? The filthiest, the filthiest, filthiest person, person alive. alive. Yeah. Okay. So again, it was like, how did, how did that, is this a, my initial thought was like, is this a sequel to multiple maniacs? Because they use the, a photo of her as the wanted poster. I was like, okay, so is this, it, it could yeah, be. Yeah. I was like, is this, but it, <laughs> because she's under a pseudonym now. Exactly. So, so it's it very, it could be, it's not, um, it's not clearly stated. It's not like a, right. Yeah. Right. So, right. and then I start to look at the couple, um, you know, that have the sex trafficking ring and everything that's going on with that. And I was like, okay, so, okay. But why, but why is this happening? And then their, their motivation to be the filthiest and take divine out. Okay. Why? Like, and I found the why questions were piling up for me. And I think in my own head, I kind of boiled that down to a lot of questions are being asked and I'm not getting answers. I've, I found myself kind of, all right, I, I sat through the first one. So I'm on board. I'm on board with whatever it is you're trying to do here, John Waters. I'm on board. So now I've sat through your second one. And you're, you're still just telling me, Hey, look, isn't this weird? 
I don't really get a lot of a a lot of a message. Uh, there's not even really there's not even really a hey these people are weird but should be treated the same. There there's not that the closest thing I got to any sort of message delivered was a shot of divine walking downstairs away from an American flag. I was like, is that, is that a message that I'm supposed to get? Like I, I was really intent on trying to find what John waters was trying to convey with this film. And I, and maybe it's on me that I didn't get it, but that being, well, but that I mean, being I... said at the end of it, if if I can't find it, I'm left with no other conclusion but to assume that it is another in a category of films that I'm that I'm calling hold my beer, where it's just kind of like, oh, you think you've seen something weird? Have you seen Pink Flamingos? Like, <laughs> have you seen have you seen Crippled well, Masters? Like, have you seen Jackass? Like, wait, I got something weird to show you. But well, I mean, for, first of all, I don't think there's anything wrong with those type of movies. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with a movie being spectacle for the sake of spectacle. Uh, I think that it, it's perfectly fine for a movie to not have something to say because that's not what every movie is trying to do. I do, however, think that there is a message in Pink Flamingos, which I will, I will talk about okay. in a minute, uh, that would actually answer several of your why questions, at least in my okay. opinion. You know, but uh, but even if it didn't, I mean, if that's not the point of what the filmmakers trying to do, like when they make Jackass Forever, they're not. There's no fucking message to that film. It's just supposed to be right. entertaining. You know, uh, that's the goal. That's the filmmaker's goal is to entertain right, the audience. Right. Uh, and that that's really John Waters' main goal is to enter entertain the audience. But I do think he actually does have some things to say, uh, which, again, I will elaborate on. But I, I wanted to, you know, give you a chance to finish your thoughts and hear Gary's thoughts first yeah. as well. Oh, uh, I didn't actually watch that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm with Todd that I ask why a lot. I think, uh, my cross to bear, uh, a lot of times is I try to be very empathetic though. And I try to understand people, even, even in real life, when I think people are just assholes or like they're sound like pricks. Sometimes I'm just like, wonder what's going on in that person's life. Mm -hmm. Like what, what's happening yeah. there? You know? When I look at John Waters stuff, I I think I even said this in the last movie. I, I get this idea of he seems to be pushing back about what people must think about the community of people that he is involved in. They're people that are rebellious. They're people that are uh on the fringes. involved in the yeah, the yeah, and, and in part of the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. Uh that there's that kind of thing. And then at the time society thought the worst about these people. So he thinks mm -hmm. it's fun to toy with that aspect of it. It's it's, and I think you could see that in the idea that it's excessive, like divide is as excessive as anybody could look mm -hmm. like he, uh, that, that whole character. Uh, I was even reading about a scene, like uh, the scene where it divides, walking along the sidewalk and the girl can't help it is playing. Mm -hmm. That's parodying a uh, film. Well, that film, the girl can't help it. Uh, Jade Mansfield, but just for opposite reasons, almost, you know, why that scene is happening. And people are oogling the person. I also think John Waters just has fun with uh, making you uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. The scenes go so long. Like they just, sometimes I watched 
listen, I watched that blowjob and it made me uncomfortable. That was the one that actually made me the most uncomfortable and not because I'm a homophobe or anything, but just because I'm just like, wow, now I'm watching a porno. <laughs> it's like, and I'm like watching it, like sitting up here in my uh, room by myself and my wife. I mean, to be fair, that would be a terrible porno. <laughs> it would be. It would be. Also, John Waters know, has even said like the reason that his movies can't play it. Like, like you remember this opening in a porn theater originally. He's like, people can't, you can't jerk off to this. Like, this is not, that's why the movies don't do well there. Yeah, I think uh, also I was put off by the fact that like, oh, I've I'm led to believe this is a mother and son, right? So, yeah. <laughs> this is also very disturbing for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I mean, despite despite the fact, like, especially with Todd and but you as well, a little bit, Gary, it seems like not understanding what genre, what what Waters' point is, for lack of a better word, from a uh, sheer experience enjoyment factor. Where did where did y'all land on it though? Because I mean, and I get I say that as someone who again I'm a big fan of John Waters. Uh, I this is not my favorite John Waters movie, but uh, it's not most people's John, favorite John Waters movie. But I like I said I have seen it probably ten times. I mean I've seen this movie quite a lot, uh, so I obviously enjoy it enough to rewatch it every few years. But uh, what about where did you guys land as far as like? The actual, without trying to figure out what the hell it all means, like just the experience of watching it, because I don't expect everyone to like this movie. John Waters movies are not for everyone. Uh, they absolutely are not. They're very niche. They're very much for a specific audience. Some people are going to find a lot of this just disgusting. Some people are going to find it hilarious. Some people are going to be somewhere in between and not just, you know, not know what to yeah, think. Yeah. <laughs> the wife asked me the other day, what'd you think? And I was like, well, it was something, you know? And uh, she's like, would you watch it again? <laughs> And I was like, in a crowd. I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think this, I would. It would be a great, a great theater crowd experience. Yeah, I was like, uh, you know, it. I'm not like put off of it as I think. It's it's so weird because it's like, uh, it's, I I can't help but also also think about Hodorowski the whole time uh, while we're doing this series because I feel like there's a parallel there. I think we mentioned that before, but like they're, they're just these weird filmmakers basically mm -hmm. as well. So, but like opposite of Hodorowski, like John Waters is such a likable dude. And yeah. like, I, I, I like him. I like listening to him talk. I like seeing the guy. He seems like somebody I'd want to be around. And, mm -hmm. uh, so it's always, it's weird that I have to also sit here and say, yeah, I saw Pink Flamingos. Do I have like a hankering to go watch it again? No, I do not. I do not care about seeing it again. Unless, like I said, it's uh, it, it ex as more of an experience than me sitting down trying to watch a movie. Yeah, 100%. I mean, this is not a movie that is, this movie is not made to be seen like sitting by yourself in a room uh, 100% percent sober you know it's not that kind of movie <laughs> it's yeah. the kind of movie you go out to a movie theater uh i mean ideally you know i watch it on my couch but you know ideally you go out to a movie theater you've uh you know you have something to drink or a little something whatever and you know get zooted and just have a fun time with it <laughs> Yeah. that's the let it let it wash over oh. you so to speak i don't know that i want this film washing over me i'll be honest in terms of enjoyment i i can't say that i did it's just a, a lot of it ended up just kind of again just try again trying to be honest trying to be fair i just didn't 
I, I found myself like diving, diving in, like really trying to absorb it. And then it, it was either going on, the scenes were going on very long and then just ending, or then we've got this weird sort of montage of a thing, or is this real? Is this uh, the thing that I'm seeing is, is this real? And then realizing the budget and the type of filmmaking that we're doing with. And I'm like, oh, I guess it's real. And then we're on to the next scene. So if I had to say a yes or no, did I enjoy it? I got to say no, but it is, it is definitely unique. I can say that. (laughs) I don't even have, I don't even have a problem with so much as like what what Todd's saying with like uh, the why part of it, as far as the narrative of the story, like I accept that it's set in a world where it's, it's a real thing to, want to be the filthiest person who ever lived right yeah that's just the reality of of, that the film lives in yeah the best way that i could describe how i felt about it in some ways is like it's like a jackass movie but it's trying to put it behind a narrative you know like it it almost feels like that basically yeah i mean i can see that uh i mean that's and that's not necessarily a negative thing. That's no, negative. no. It just is what it is. It's <laughs> but not. It, it's not but it has, to be it like has the eff- Citizen Kane or anything, right? It kind of right. has the effect of when you see the jackass guys, or you know, uh, mostly the same crew from the CKY videos and stuff. When they try to do a skit that has some sort of narrative arc, and you're like, oh, oh, "Why? Just hit, just hit each other in the nuts." I, <laughs> I mean, Bad Grandpa did it pretty well, yeah, you know. You know <laughs> So I don't know. So, uh, uh, I mean, I think by, it's really by the easy. way, John Waters yeah. is in Jackass Part Two. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> I forgot about it's that. not lost on any of any of. No. It's not lost on any of those yeah. people. <laughs> no, no, no. But I, I do think it's really easy, especially fifty years after its release, to dismiss Pink Flamingos as just like a gross-out movie. But I think, and I've said this a thousand times on this podcast, I think in order to really truly appreciate a movie's impact. You really have to consider the context in which it was made. You know, uh, Pink Flamingos came out in 1972. 1972. So think of this movie and think of the uh, social environment, the political environment that it came out in, right? Uh, By 1970, it's clear that the summer of love, all the hippie shit was over. It had been fairly useless. Uh, You know, you had the Manson murders, Vietnam, Nixon, the assassination of uh, MLK, the Stonewall riots. All of this happened during the time when John Waters was making his early films. I mean, hell, we still had a few years of Vietnam left Mm -hmm. at this point. The Vietnam was still going on and people were angry, uh, especially people in marginalized communities, which is who Waters has the most affection for, I think. So while you've got conservative middle-class white America clinging onto the their white picket fences from the you know from their post-war 1950s lives you had the black power the gay liberation and the feminist movements pushing forward uh so what john waters is doing here really in my opinion this and this is something that really hit me watching it this time uh just thinking about the the, the year it was made is that he's this is punk rock before punk rock was even a thing, right? This is John Waters looking at the culture around him and realizing that the, the whole flower power thing didn't didn't do jack, jack shit to make things better. So if people being all lovey-dovey and wearing flowers in their hair isn't going to do it, then maybe a little raw shock value would snap people out of their complacency. Uh, because if the so-called greatest generation wasn't doing anything to help, then maybe it was time to turn to the people that society had outcast. Uh, 
Because in Waters' films, and th- not just this movie, but his films in general, uh, even his more Hollywood commercial stuff like Hairspray, the outcasts are the ones who are depicted as the characters worth rooting for. Uh, like in, in this one, yeah, Divine's family is perverse and they're gross, but they have affection for each other. And even their acts of filth are mostly benign, uh, you know, as opposed to the filthy acts of the marbles who are kidnapping women, impregnating them against their will, selling babies, using the profits from those babies to fund uh, heroin rings in the local elementary schools. Right. Like they're, what they're doing is evil, like pure, plain and simple. What they're doing is evil. So what John Waters is doing is he's saying like, he, what he's showing is, okay, you've got, you've got the trailer park drag queen. And then you've got a middle-class suburban hetero couple who are trying to dethrone her. And you, you've got the, the marbles are depicted as they're self-righteous. They're jealous and cruel and pretentious. And yes, the divine's clan is gross, but they're not necessarily malicious to other people except for the marbles. Once they're trying to get their revenge, but the, the, the marbles are really John waters depiction of normal society like this is the these are the people who live in the white picket fences you know what i mean they're they're the only like normal like quote unquote normal because obviously they're a a bit odd uh they're they're with the whole toe shrimping he calls it shrimping the shrimping fetish uh and but but they're depicted as like they're a heterosexual couple Mm. right who live in a nice house uh but whereas in contrast to divine who lives in a little rinky dink trailer right so this is kind of John Waters, and I think this is John Waters' attack on quote-unquote normal society. And again, that's fucking punk rock, right? And this was several years before the Ramones, the Sex Pistols, the the Clash, the Damned, the Buzzcocks. It, it, none of these bands existed yet. All these exa- all these bands that, that were considered punk wouldn't come a- around for another three or four or five years, right? Uh, and yet here's John Waters doing exactly what they're going to do, which is creating a treaties against the squares and against the norms, the people who have looked down upon them for their entire lives. Uh, he's doing that here and he's even doing it with characters who have brightly colored hair. And if wait till you get uh, on the next film, divine has a look that is heavily going to influence the look of, of punk going mm. forward. So to me, to ask why, what is John Waters doing here? To me, what he's doing is he's saying like, you should be yourself unabashedly. You know, that's what he, that's what divine is doing here. Uh, it, it obviously it's blown up to like insane proportions and unreasonable proportions, but, uh, he is, they, they, it's, it's essentially a film about being who you are, uh, authentically, you know, and that's why it's become, uh, incredibly influential. That's why it's become considered. This goes back to one of the reviews Gary read, I think, but it's why it's become one of the most influential and important queer movies ever made. Cause this is one of the first times that, you know, they had a queer person on screen that is just saying, Hey, be yourself, be who you mm-hmm. are and fuck what everyone else has to say mm-hmm. about it. You know, uh, it's why divine has become one of the most important and recognizable figures in pop culture and especially in queer pop, pop mm. culture. Uh, and that, that, that scene that you mentioned earlier, um, the one where divine's walking down the streets of Baltimore while little Richard's playing, the girl can't help yeah. it, you know, right. um, they didn't get extras 
for that scene. The people who are looking at sh- at Divine with shock and awe and, and sometimes delight, you know, depending on who you're looking at, those are just real people out on the street. They're shooting this guerrilla style. But that scene kind of functions as a celebration of Divine's individuality. Mm. The girl can't help it. I mean, that that song is a very specific choice that's being made. She can't help it. This is who she is, right? Uh, that's what that scene's about. And, and some people are looking at her and think that she's looks insane. She's gross, but other people are looking at her like she's the fucking queen that she thinks she is. Uh, and I think that's the reason why this movie is still being talked about and why divine has become such a legend. I mean, divine is a legendary figure that most people who haven't even seen this movie would recognize. Uh, part of that's because drag queen culture has latched onto her. I mean, before we talked about this a little bit on the last episode, but before divine drag queens were really just focused on being female impersonators and being as pretty as possible and doing pageants. And, but divine, especially her performance and appearance here even turned drag culture on its head uh, because it brought a subversiveness and a sense of humor to it. That still like any comedy queen you see today owes what they do to what divine did here. Like this was kind of the beginning of that type of culture. Uh, Like, I mean, hell, RuPaul wouldn't have a career if it had not been for Divine Drag. RuPaul's Drag Race had an entire episode on one season devoted to John Waters. Every skit was like the the queens who were competing, um, recreating John Waters sketches, and a lot of them from this movie. They did, they did, they had the Egg Lady in there. They did some stuff from Female Trouble as well. But uh, I mean, modern drag culture simply would not exist the way that it does without this movie and without Divine. Hmm. So yeah. Pink Flamingos is disturbing and it's outrageous and it's a film that does aim to shock and disgust people, but it's also a a highly influential piece of cinema, a a highly influential piece of trash cinema. Yeah. But, uh, but it's still very important. It's one of the most important independent films ever made, possibly maybe the most influential queer film ever made. Uh, And there's a reason, like I said, that we're talking about it 50 years later. And it's not just because it's got a singing asshole in it and because divine eats dog shit, right? It's because it was important to people and it still is to this day. And I, I, I get that it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but it's also not supposed to be everyone's cup of tea. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's not made for everybody. It's not made for the type of people that John Waters is skewering with, with the marbles, you know, uh, like the, the, the version of those people that exist in real life, the squares as John Waters would probably call them, he knows they're not going to like this movie. That's not who he made the movie for. He made it for the people. He made it for the weirdos and the people who have, have felt like they are on the outside of society. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think that it was latched onto by the counterculture in the seventies and why people continue to watch it to this day. And yeah, sometimes people watch it just because it's fun to gross out your friends and show them this movie. If they haven't seen it before, I've done that. I probably did that yeah. to you guys, <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's not why people are still talking about it. Uh, that's not the reason that it has longevity. Otherwise, I mean, half a century, people are still talking about this movie. That's it's sort of insane, considering the movie, the type of movie that yeah. it is. You yeah. Know? Well, because I and that's why I still am trying to keep like a positive outlook because when I see like, oh, it's in the Library of Congress, and knowing mm-hmm. the description of what the Library of Congress considers films for its collection, I was like, okay, there's got to be something. <laughs> Like let, let well, let's let's try so, to find it. Well, what you're talking about, Todd? Yeah, I was actually uh, interested in that myself, and yeah, um, uh, this was before it even got uh, criteria treatment. One of the reviews I left out, by the way, it was like, 
uh, I don't think I said it. It was, I must have skipped it, but it said, shit is still shit, even if it's on criteria. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it was it was accepted in the National Film Registry of the U.S. Library of Congress in December of 21. And uh, there was an interview in an article I found asking John Waters about that. And he said, uh, quote, I have seen that list every year and fantasized that they would pick Pink Flamingos. I think that that one had the best chance, weirdly, because you can dislike the movie, but you can't say it didn't affect culture in any way, because I think Divide made all drag queens more fierce and more hip, funnier Mm -hmm. and crazier. Mm -hmm. And so I think it has had an effect. So I'm just incredibly proud of it. It's very, very exciting to me with no irony whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, he's absolutely right. I just want to say uh, it is strange because I, I I was I was reading that quote and then I was looking up like uh, the effect on like culture in that way and yeah it's obvious like like punk's gonna come from there if you don't realize mm-hmm. it you know just the the stuff you were talking about like I don't know that punk necessarily comes from it specifically but it's a precursor it is influenced by it. yeah yeah yeah, it's, yeah. It, this is this is pre kind of pre punk it's not like punk exists because this existed uh, this is just the same culture that bred punk is also this is not this is not normal yeah yeah and uh and drag queens you know like before this period i i I was reading somewhere was talking about you know even then were like more like high class looking Mm -hmm. characters you know yeah like i said they were female impersonators you know and uh and i know it would be an episode if i don't mention my friend polio Damar, who is uh (laughs) in the nwa right now who is a trailer park drag queen like Mm -hmm. polio Damar's character is not a highfalutin fancy girl polio Damar is living in the trailer park talking about how through billy just bought her a new washer and uh wearing daisy dukes and you know got her hair done like dolly so yeah uh, i mean and and trixie mattel who is probably the most famous drag queen in the world right now who's who maybe with the exception of rupaul trixie mattel i mean that's not a typical uh pageanty you know beauty queen look that she has it's it's very over the top it's very out there and you know like i said and she has become the most famous drag queen in the world so in that that lineage kind of starts with with divine and van, van smith's makeup that he did on divine and that whole look and that whole attitude and the campiness of divine's performance here which if you watch a lot if i mean i watch a lot of drag race so uh, their and their performances are, are often very campy one because they're untrained actors but also because that's kind of like the style because that's what divine created you know it's really cool to think about so with that said fellas this is a this is a tough episode to do this on but i think it's time for further viewing uh if you were going to do a double feature with pink flamingos what's what is it gonna be oh boy I'm going to jump in here and say I did not have a hard time this time around. Okay. I legitimately thought of two movies, and they may not make any sense to anybody else, but I swear to God these movies came to mind while I was watching this. Uh, And one of them is uh, Alejandro Hodorowski's The Holy Mountain. Yeah. uh, Because I thought if you want a real peek inside of somebody's brain and also (laughs) see somebody shit somewhere... Uh, yeah, <laughs> doesn't turn into gold in this movie, but yeah. <laughs> right, it was like just a real, real activity revolving around doo doo. That uh, here you go, uh, the Holy Mountain could work. Uh, I also thought this one's even odder, but you want to see a particular uh, subset of society uh, that uh, gets real fucked up 
throughout and especially by the end well society i thought of society oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) there's also buttholes in that one too so (laughs) yeah shunting uh the shunting weird freaky stuff in society i love that movie man uh, i love yeah. i love society we we got i don't know we got to maybe revisit uh stuart gordon and doing brian yuzna series or something at, at one point on this podcast because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i'd love to talk i'm pretty sure the society is on our roulette uh, it is list, opposite but... end of the uh spectrum of uh roles in society but yes yeah. oh yeah yeah it's about the bu- the bourgeois <laughs> but <Yeah>. yes <laughs> Uh, how about uh, so last time I talked about uh, multiple maniacs sort of falling in between a spectrum with uh, clerks and uh, jackass on either end. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, so okay. I'm going to talk about another because I, I, I threw I threw my hands up. I was just like, I don't I don't know. It's tough. So I was like, OK, I mean, so, it's easy to pair it with like female trouble or desperate sure living. sure but that goes again that goes that's the that's the go-to is you immediately like the only thing I, it's like it's the same with hodorowski it's like oh the the thing i could pair it with is another one of this guy's yeah movies. well yeah because i mean i told you the first time i bought this movie it was literally on a double feature blu-ray or dvd with female yeah. trouble yeah. <laughs> so i was like okay if we're gonna if we're because I, I like the idea of kind of a spectrum of things and so i was like okay let's put pink flamingos at one end of the spectrum what film is on the other end of the spectrum and but i was trying but but with something that ties them together um and i thought about the idea that uh pink flamingos was made uh you know independently on a small budget and grossed well over its budget um if you say clerks again, I'm going to be very no, upset. No, <laughs> clerks too. Again, we're going other end of the spectrum. Uh, so I, here's a here's a big swing. Passion of the Christ. Jesus Christ. What? So, so here here's why you start you start your evening with Passion of the Christ because it's gonna it's gonna take you down a particular path. And oh then, this and is, then you go, lost your fucking you mind. Go, this is what <laughs> this is what you've done to me, Justin Bishop. <laughs> like I used to, ha- I, I used you- to have rational thoughts, and then I watched Pink Flamingos. <laughs> that's that's another T-shirt, by the way. Uh, but uh, no, like you know, produced independently, did really well at the box office, and they are on other ends of the spectrum. That that was my thought process. My thought process there, if I'm going, (laughs) if I'm going down this road with you, Todd, I think you start with peak flamingos and then you have to show passion of Christ to be like, and this is why he had to do this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's called cause and effect. (laughs) Cause and effect double feature. (laughs) All right. So my, my pick is a movie that I'll be honest. I've not seen it in 20 years, probably, and I did not like it when I first saw it. Uh, but it's one that I've been wanting to revisit, uh, mostly because my my taste in film has changed a lot in, in the intervening years. And I've learned to like some other films from this filmmaker. Uh, but it's from 1997. It's another film about people living on the fringes of society in a small town. This town being in a, a small town in Ohio. It's also very grimy, very dirty, very gross, very off-putting. It deals with a lot of uh, similar issues than d- Pink Flamingos, but in, in different ways. Uh, but it is uh, Harmony Kareen's Gummo. 
from 1997. I think if you would, if you just want a double feature where you need a bath afterwards, <laughs> then that is your double feature: wow. Pink Flamingos and Gummo. I didn't think of Gummo because I don't know that I've ever seen that movie. I think I would remember if I've seen it. I don't think I've seen that movie. Yeah, um, yeah you, you probably you you would remember it. I mean, I, I I've like I said, I've, I haven't seen it since I saw it on IFC back in the day because one of my college professors recommended it, and I just remember staying up to like three in the morning because it had come on it came on like really late it came on like 1 a.m so i stayed up to watch it and i just remember and this could have been because i was exhausted but i just remember going what the fuck was that (laughs) but i've also like i said it's it's thinking back on it it's the type of movie that i enjoy more now than i did then you know what i mean uh and i like harmony kareen's last couple of movies a lot i mean i love spring breakers i love uh the beach bum so i feel like i should revisit it and see what my thoughts on it Mm. would be now you know what i mean so that's my pick that that seems like it would make sense based on everything I've seen about it. And I, I, uh, you know, what's funny is, is like Todd's, I guess Todd went the most commercial with this movie, mm-hmm. but I was even reading an interview with John. Oh, oh, side note. Also, one of the reviews I didn't include with this, I just realized was another one that said, uh, I've seen two movies I hate and I had a least favorite, but this one just surpassed it. So Pink Flamingos just beat, beat this movie. He said the other movie was Birth of a Nation. Wow. All right. But uh, anyway, uh, we're talking about this movie like it's not some, you know, like it, it like it shouldn't be a commercial movie. But in one re- interview I was looking at with John Waters, he talks about it being a defining like co- commercial movie. And the reporter's like, how are you defining commercial? <laughs> hey, like, made a lot of money. It, he was like, there was an audience for it. I exploited yep. it to that audience. I wanted them to come mm-hmm. pay to see it for a midnight movie. This was very commercial. Uh, yeah. And I mean, like, especially I, if you think of like the budget to profit, highly profitable, you know, the interviewer was like, I guess maybe we should say mainstream. And he's like, well, Pink Flamingos played on television uncut. It was on the Sundance channel. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so in his book, shock value, uh, John Waters says, I know I'll never make a sequel to Pink Flamingos because it would have to end with Divine taking a shit and the dog eating it. (laughs) (laughs) He ended up changing his mind on that, actually. And he did write a sequel called Flamingos Forever. Uh, Troma Entertainment actually offered to finance it, but it ended up never getting made for a couple different reasons. One, uh, Divine actually ended up refusing to be involved because he was trying to get more legit uh, at this point, he didn't think it was a good career move. Him and his manager didn't think it was a good career move. He was like, he was grateful for Pink Flamingos. He didn't like, wasn't ashamed of it or anything. He was very grateful for it, but thought that, you know, I'm tired of talking about eating dog shit, basically. Because every time he went on talk shows or anything, that's all anyone I wanted to ask him about. Uh, so he, he's trying to be more legit, become more of a character actor and, and not just in female roles but in in more serious male roles he wanted to be you know just a, a legit character actor so he didn't think that like reverting back to playing this character in a pink flamingo sequel was a good good idea so that was the the first thing that w- kind of was the nail in the coffin on flamingos forever also edith massey died in 1984 uh which is another factor in why it never got made but uh because she she is a major character in it as well but uh, John Waters did eventually publish it in a book called Trash Trio in 1988, which has the uh, 
the screenplays for Pink Flamingos, Desperate Living, and then Flamingos Forever. So he officially published it. You can read it. I did read it, actually, for this episode, uh, just at, mostly out of curiosity. I bought a used copy of the book online, and um, it's very funny. It's very funny, uh, and would I would love to see it. There are There's stuff that, I mean, would be hard to get through some studios, but if it's going to be trauma, there's nothing in there that hasn't been in trouble before, but it clearly would also need to have a much bigger budget. I think he was going to shoot for like a $60,000 budget on it. Uh, I mean, there are, there's a scene where divine is giving a big speech kind of not, not unlike the one she gives at the end here, but it's, it's a little earlier in the film and she starts like levitating off the floor. Like it's got some like crazy, almost supernatural stuff in it. Cause basically it's divine returning to Baltimore after she's been in Boise for 15 years right and she's become a legend and there are like groupies and people waiting for her when she comes back to town and then there's another uh couple who are trying to take her throne as the filthiest person alive and it's connie marble's sister and her husband who are uh, who are the the antagonist in it um and it's it's really funny i would i would definitely recommend reading it if you are a fan of john waters stuff but it's a shame it never got made i will go ahead and spoil the ending at the end of the movie a, a dog poops it looks like it's looks like it's going to be a recreation of the the last scene in Pink Flamingos. Dog poops. Uh, Divine kind of winkingly looks at the camera, and then there's like a poof of smoke, and the turd get is bigger, and then it poofs again, and it's bigger, and then everyone uh, gets on top of the turd, and it flies away, and then, while they're riding on the back of it, <laughs> <laughs> that's how <laughs> that's how the movie ends. So. I like it. Uh, yes, I love it. It's wonderful. <laughs> so anyway, if you want to read it, Trash Trios, uh, I don't know if it's still published, but I got I got a used copy for like six bucks on Amazon So it's or, or eBay. So very easy to find. You know, it's out there. You could probably find the script online, for being honest. But, uh, but you know, John Waters, uh, he never got to make that movie, but this Pink Flamingos did lead to some, uh, to his next film, really. Uh, although his next film did get made before... Pink Flamingo's run as a midnight movie had even ended. Like he, he went on to the next movie, but the early success of Pink Flamingo's did help him move on to the next film. Of course, he's going to reunite with most of his regular dreamlanders. Uh, this next movie is going to continue divine's rise to, uh, to cult stardom. And uh, it ultimately uh, the movie would be dedicated to a member of the Manson family, which is a story I'm sure we're going to have to talk about next week. <laughs> I was literally sitting here thinking the last point I wanted to make is like, is the Manson family going to be uh, wrapped up in the next one? Because they, they were again here uh, yeah. you know, that you, you mentioned at the top, John Waters go into the Manson trials. There's divine mm -hmm. walking in front of the graffiti that says free Tex Watson. Yep. Uh, Susan Atkins, I think is in a framed picture in like mm -hmm. the marbles house or something. And uh, it's just, it's weird. The Manson family. And I saw an interview with John waters that I, I couldn't find out like anything specific so far, but he did say the Manson family was the original, uh, filthiest family or something yeah, like filthiest people alive yeah. yeah 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 he's got a little bit of a, uh, an obsession with the whole uh, manson trial because it's all happening while he's making these movies too you know yeah. uh but uh yeah so th but this movie that we're talking about we're, next week we're going to be talking about female trouble uh and female trouble is actually i looked it up and it is 
if you look it up on Letterboxd, it is the highest rated of all of his films on Letterboxd, even higher than Hairspray. Uh, and John Waters, uh, at least in at least one interview I read, said that he considered it his favorite of his films, or at least of his early films. I think he said it was his favorite of his films overall. But uh, so I'm looking forward to talking about it. It's going to be a fun discussion once again. Uh, so join us next week, everyone. We'll be talking about female trouble. I'm excited to see just his evolution as a filmmaker. That is one thing I'm, I'm interested in because I feel like he's progressively getting more skilled at that aspect of it. He too. definitely is. And you, and you'll see that. I mean, once you get to hairspray, he's just making a Hollywood movie, but, but he's not, he's not necessarily watering down his, his brand because doing the gross out stuff doesn't fit that movie. And he knows that. So he's not like, he wasn't trying to necessarily make a mainstream hit with that. It just, everything clicked, you know, but, right. uh, he, he considers, or a lot of people consider Pink Flamingo's Female Trouble and Desperate Living to be a sort of loose trilogy. Uh, the trash trilogy, I think, is what people call it. They're, they're, you know, because they're all, these are all kind of his trashy lower budget movies, although you start moving more into higher budgets as you go. Uh, polyester is sort of the middle ground between the trashy stuff and the Hollywood stuff. And then Hairspray is when he, quote unquote, goes legit. You know, it's wild. So it's, it's a fun, it's a cool progression. Yeah. I, um, I, I don't, I don't think I mentioned, I don't think I've done this since the last one we saw, but for completely unrelated to what we're doing here, the wife picked, if we do a movie night with another couple, I'm sure I've mentioned that, but like, uh, every Wednesday and she picked a couple of weeks ago, she picked Crybaby. And so oh, yeah. we, we watched Crybaby and, was, was this before crazy. or after she got mad at you for watching Pink Flamingos? This was before, before Pink Flamingos. <laughs> yeah, this was before. But we had watched uh, Multiple Maniacs. And oh, she so, watched that with you? Yeah, she watched that with me. And she was like, okay, this is not for me. But we watched Crybaby. And she likes Crybaby. And, yeah, and Crybaby has enough weirdness that you're like, okay, I could see John Waters is here, you know? But it is like the production value is like on a whole oh, different yeah. level, you know? Yeah, he eventually gets to a point where he's really. Um, finding the balance between still being a John Waters movie, but being a little more, and that might just come with maturity and age too, honestly, and skill level. Obviously he, he, and he gets other people involved and it's, he's not shooting everything himself. And, you know, I think polyester is the first one where he doesn't shoot it himself, but it's going to be fun to talk about all of them. I'm, I'm very excited about it. So join us for uh female trouble. It's pretty easy to find. You can find that one streaming, unlike Pink Flamingos, unfortunately. And Pink Flamingos is a little tough to find uh, unless you purchase the Criterion uh, or go buy the out-of-print DVD, which you're going to pay about the same amount for the Criterion, so you might as well shoot for the Blu-ray. Uh, so, I think that's all we got for today, guys. Where can you be found on the internet? Hey, I'm at, uh, this is Gary Horde on Instagram and Twitter. If you like wrestling, I host This Is Pro Wrestling. Uh, it's at This Is Pro Wrestling on YouTube and at TIPW Show on Instagram. I also work with the National Wrestling Alliance and you can access their links in their bio on Instagram at NWA. Check them out. Subscribe on YouTube, youtube.com slash at NWA. And uh, I'm working my way through the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order on my show, Computer Resume Podcast, uh, available now wherever you get your podcasts and on all the socials at Computer Resume. And I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond, as long as they behave themselves. And I'm at Justin underscore Bishop. You can find me on Instagram and Letterboxd there or Twitter, which I use occasionally. Uh, the show is out uh, Twitter. See that new 600 tweet limit thing that what? they put out twitter's a weird dying. 
weird. Twitter's scenario. dying a slow death. Yeah, very strange. Anyway, the show is also on Twitter and Instagram at cinema underscore shock. Uh, you can also find all of our episodes as well as links to our Discord, our merch, all that stuff uh, at uh, our on our website at cinemashock.net. As always, uh, if you like the show, rate, review, and share it with anyone you know and however you want to share it with them. Until next time, may the wigs of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. Oh, I love you, Johnny. I love you more than anything in this whole world. I love you more than my own filthiness, more than my own hair color. Oh, God, I love you more than the sounds of bones breaking, the sound of the keys rattling, even more than the sound of my own shit. Do I love you, Johnny? <laughs> That's good. Excellent, Johnny. <laughs> 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 Ha, 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 ha.